Graham Rowntree has been announced as uh, the new coach of Munster Rugby. That was such a big momentum changer for me. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. It's half past seven on this Wednesday morning. You're welcome along to OTB AM. It's Owen and Johnny Ward and Johnny's Toast with you all the way until 10 o'clock this morning we'll get a sneak preview of that in just a moment we'll have Mark Lawrence with us after 8 o'clock to review last night's madness in the Champions League look ahead to Liverpool versus Villarreal we'll have Matt Williams chatting rugby a little bit later on and we're also remembering the work of art that is McCarthy's Park a little bit later on as well because why not why not remember one of the greatest Irish sports documentaries we've seen a lot of this morning though is going to be spent on trying to pick through what happened at the Etihad last night we'd love to hear your thoughts on the, on the Champions League you can tweet us at Off The Ball or you can comment on the YouTube stream if that's where you're getting us this morning Nathan's also going to be with us for the morning Nathan how are you getting on? Morning lads A 10 out of 10 game last night? Oh yeah Oh this was as good as it gets outrageously good one of those matches you have to watch back the highlights the following morning to remember how many good moments there were, how many brilliant goals there were. And it just seems to be every Tuesday, Wednesday night in the Champions League. It just gets better and better and better. There were no highlights is the thing. The entire first half was an entire highlights package. I watched the whole game at around 11 o'clock last night and I was like, okay, you can fast forward through the, the lulls here <laughs> in the game. And it's like, there literally are no lulls. It took until about, I think, 60 minutes for there to be that first passage of play where Manchester City do that thing where they control possession for a while. The ball goes from side to side. But for that, literally the first half, it was completely frantic in a way that from Real Madrid's perspective, you just wouldn't have expected. You would have you would have thought that there would have been some sort of way that they could have just put the brakes on the pace of the game a little bit. But they were happy to go and let this thing explode into madness as well. Well, from both sides, Real Madrid being the away team, but also Manchester City's style of play is often to just kill it and to dominate possession and to be incredibly patient. Whereas this felt like a big European night at a club with a massive European history where the energy becomes too much for the players and they just get swept up in the emotion of it. If Manchester City, coming away from that, will wonder how the tie is still alive. They should have scored seven, eight goals last night. They were, as an attacking force, as good as we have seen from them, maybe since Pep Guardiola came to the club. They just left it all out there. Like Kevin De Bruyne had possibly his best performance in a Manchester City jersey. It's been coming over the last few weeks. He has becoming more and more influential. The drive that he has, the strength that he has under pressure while dribbling with the ball, when there's one, two players on his back to hold them off, to still be able to lift his head and to pick out a pass. Phil Foden looks to be right at the top of his game. Uh, Riyad Mahrez, I can never understand how he isn't an automatic selection in that Manchester City side. So attacking-wise, City were just brilliant. And... I don't know how Real Madrid just hung on in there. You look back at that game, it doesn't feel like any Real Madrid player was exceptional, but they just never die. And we've seen it consistently during this year's tournament, through the history of the Champions League. They just find a way, and Luka Modric at crucial moments of the game, game without being at his very best, can pick out a pass, can ease a little bit of pressure. And then the just pure genius of Benzema to score the opening goal, which maybe unsettles Manchester City a little bit when I say that, but they came back straight away and Good as good, another couple. Uh, yeah, oh, it was. You just can't wait for the second leg. Yeah, it's going to be that, brilliant. That moment where uh, Nathan, where um, Mares is through a two nil and doesn't square for Foden, and Guardiola completely loses the plot. I think for me, it was just like you can tell how much this means to him. And even at two nil, he's like, "We need a third goal here." And 
you're thinking like 2 0 up against Man City or against Real, they're fine. They'll be like, they'll coast through this. And you could tell that he was, that maybe that's the reason he doesn't play Mares all the time. Like, why did you not square the ball to Foden? Well, for him to hit it with his right foot as well is mm. probably completely unacceptable in the Manchester City culture where you always have to take the right option. When he's bearing down a goal, you're, you're waiting for the pass because that's always what Manchester City do. But I think the stadium was, was so alive at that stage and Manchester City were so alive that, that he just felt, well, this is the moment. Everything is going right for us. And at that stage, I was a little bit disappointed in that, again, we built these matches up to be these stone-cold classics and thinking, City are going to win this 3 or 4 nil. Yeah, we might get a little bit of something next week with a sign of a Madrid comeback, but this isn't going to be one of those nights. And I'm still not quite sure, having watched it live and watched back the highlights, how it turned around. Because, say, Manchester City were just so good in, in ways in a different style than we have seen them be so good. This was... I don't want to say it was almost like Manchester City playing like Liverpool in that it was more that sort of shock and awe style of real high pace and intensity and, and less control than you would expect from a, a Manchester City side, which uh, it does seem a lot of people spend a lot of time with their cameras on Pep Guardiola, even uh, supporters or journalists just planted there because there's dozens of videos of his reactions to every moment in the match. And listen, he's always uh, you know, he's always on edge, I think, during any game, a Carabao Cup game. But this is his legacy, though. This is his legacy. This is it. Like, they, they got to win the Champions League. They do. But, like, his legacy is sort of set in stone in, in many ways. In, in, in Man City. But if it they don't, would be yeah, an if, underachievement not to win a Champions League with this group of players who, mm. as a squad the best in Europe, the most expensively assembled in Europe. They should be winning a Champions League. I do think that things can happen in knockout competitions where an offside decision, think back to the game against Spurs a couple of years ago where there's late goals disallowed, and there's late winners. Things can happen. That mean the best team doesn't necessarily always win the Champions League, but to go through a five, six-year spell and not win one uh, with this group of players, does it, it doesn't tarnish his legacy, but it, you know, it certainly doesn't enhance it. Mm. Speaking of cameras that have been trained on Pep Guardiola, we can have a look at what his reaction was to Fernandinho getting turned by Vinicius last night. This is fan footage from the Etihad last night. Keep your eyes on Pep. Hands in the head as soon as he gets turned. On his knees, on one knee. Hand on the ground as he sees Vinicius go through. Back of the net. Devastated. Fuming. I, I love how in the aftermath of the game Pep is like this is fine everything's absolutely grand you know Real Madrid good team good team like Pep Guardiola almost oversaw I think an 8-2 last night this could have been Bayern Barcelona last night and not too many things needed to go differently maybe not at that magnitude but it could have been a 6-2 last night I think Pep Guardiola is fuming this morning when he, when he thinks back to some of those moments last night like some of them are unavoidable if Fernandinho which was his decision to put him on at right back when John Stones goes off injured now they obviously have problems with Cancelo suspended uh, Kyle Walker not there but you still wonder you know, he'll often play Nathan Aki at left back could you play Nathan Aki at, at right back uh, because from the moment Fernandinho came on you felt there's a real opportunity for Real Madrid to get him here because how can he ever have the pace uh, that you would need to play in that position right now but it could have been this could have been one of this could have been a landmark night for Manchester City. It could have been City's greatest ever performance. It might well have been City's greatest ever performance last night. But the result now doesn't reflect that. And with City's history in the tournament, and of 
everything that could possibly go wrong, going wrong, whether it's a tactical selection or a referee's decision or just not performing on the night. With that history on one side and Real Madrid's history, both this season and historically, of just somehow always been able to get the job done, he, he must be incredibly nervous going to the Bernabeu next Wednesday night. I think part of the Fernandinho thing as well as he comes on and... Uh, he skins his man on the right inside, gets the assist mm. in front of the goals, and he's like, I can do this. Yeah. I'm, I'm 24 again. This is absolutely fine. Vinicius, I'm going to take you. I'm going to get the ball, and I'm going to do it again. I'm going to get down the right wing and get a second assist. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, I, actually. I, the, how tight he was, just like, yeah, there's a lapse of judgment in terms of like where he is in life at the moment. But um, I mean, in, in <laughs> well, fairness... Well, he's, he's Bruce Banner when he's defending. He's the Incredible Hulk when he was going forward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in fairness, I mean, like, they should go over there and like their goal up, they should just basically manage that game and play, play them on the break no problems like in theory in theory but City don't generally play on the break like City's defined style is to have control and by giving up control of the game I'm sure the feeling would be that you allow Real Madrid more opportunities the problem with Madrid is just the genius that is there of Benzema been uh, right up there among the best players in the world certainly the most informed player in the world right now that out of nothing consistently back to back to back Champions League games he has been able to create goals. So I don't know if City can go away from home, let Madrid dominate possession. I think they certainly need more control than they had last night. They need to go back to, I don't want to get into a debate about our City boring or exciting or whatever, but just that, you know, a thousand passes per game, control it, uh, not any sort of shock and awe like they had last night. But can you do that in the Bernabeu in a Champions League semi-final away from home? I'm not too sure. It is 20 to 8. You're with us here on OTB AM, which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Let's tell you what's coming up over the course of the next couple of hours. Champions League, we're going to stick on this for the next little while and then Mark Lawrence will hop on the line at 10 past 8. We'll also preview Liverpool against Villarreal before we're done this morning. Sports page is coming your way at 8.25 this morning. A couple of interesting bits in there, not least Darrow O'Shea uh, having a bit of a pop off Cork, calling them a disgrace this morning. We might get producer <coughs> Colin Buig's uh, reaction to that to defend the people of Cork. Uh, a what bit sort of Yerraism is that on? I, I don't know. This is really, uh, this is really uh, avoiding the script, ripping up the script, and and uh, giving Cork a little bit more petrol for their uh, sense of trying to take Harry down in a couple of weeks. Uh, we've got the news update with uh, Cahill a little bit later on. And uh, have you seen coming up at uh, 10 to 9, which is on McCarthy's Park, Matt Williams then, we were talking rugby at 10 past 9, and then some OTB reaction from half past nine. Uh, Johnny, you were out and about last night. How did you manage to, to watch? You watched this in chunks, I understand, yeah, last night? Yeah, w- watched, uh, was that the, the low gig, uh, Vicar Street, felt very old. Um, people, most people there seem to be like 50 odd. Um, so they're they're going on. Uh, felt very young, I would have thought, if that's the average age. Yeah, but you're looking around, you're like, yeah, um, everyone has beards here, like, and uh, and so on and so forth. Um, watch the what's, first half. What, what, what sort of gig are you going to where they wouldn't have beards? Yeah, everyone, everyone has beards and, and, and like, grey beards as well. Um, but I uh, watched the first half in a new bar, Dudley's, and then uh, watched the second half, like, a back like you, and just put it on, um, and it was just, like, you couldn't take your eyes off it. It was like... How how Man City like what was the X three in that game like it certainly wasn't four three and it was I don't know I part of me doesn't want them at all to succeed in anything just the way the club is structured and I certainly hope they they don't win the Champions League and you're just looking at these like um, Real players who probably should be past it at this stage but can still do it and I don't know you can see Guardiola that he's like you know this this should this should be home and hosed and it's not and. 
Yeah. Would you believe the XG if we're rounding up and down? It was actually 3-2 last night. XG? I don't know how that happened. Okay. Uh, it, it, Man City with 3.08. Real Madrid with 1.66. Yeah. Uh, according to the XG philosophy on Twitter. How was your evening? Very good. I was at Metronomy at the Olympia. Unfortunately, I didn't get the first half in before the game. Yeah. I saw 2-0 and I was like, grand. This is this is a highlights package. You'll be able to get a good sense of things. And then when I saw 4-3, I was like, right, I'm going to have to watch the full 90 when I get home. But, I mean, as, well, as I said, absolutely. It's, 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 the funny thing was Real, like, they, they shouldn't be able to do this. But even, I don't know, Nathan, at 2-0, you're kind of like, nah, this just still could be a little bit of a twist to this. Like, In one way, but City were creating so many chances, it felt inevitable they were going to get a third. It was just that we have seen Real Madrid do it so many, so many times. And it wasn't as if they got back into the game by getting a stranglehold on it. It was just one brilliant delivery, a sensational finish from Benzema that got them there. But there is something innate in Real Madrid that they can they can hang about. Like if they were to somehow win the Champions League this season, uh, to go and beat Man City and then Villarreal or Liverpool, it would be up there with one of the great managerial achievements from Carlo Ancelotti, who, you know, on this show has questioned quite a bit yeah. uh, about just how good he is as a manager. And, like, last night sums him up. Like, Was there anything about last night's performance in Real Madrid that you would say, you know what, tactically, Carlo Ancelotti got it spot on last night? Not really. Like, Manchester City were absolutely rampant with the way that Real Madrid set up. But they have enough talent in players that shouldn't have the talent they still have at that age in Modric and Benzema in particular and the bit of pace of Vinicius and Rodrigo and I thought Fede Valverde was excellent last night, maybe their best player consistently on the pitch. But somehow he always seems to have a group of players who just get a job done for him. But you know, could any manager have done that last night? I'm not, I don't know. Like That's the... It's the genius in many ways of Ancelotti. Ancelotti always feels like as well that everything happens to him by accident. That he's just standing there and all the chaos is ensuing around him and he's kind of like shrugging his shoulders almost like, what can I do about it? Like, it's, it's, it's up to you. And like, obviously that's not the reality of, of what Ancelotti has done. Like, I mean, he, he, he could go in and, and win a Champions League title in the 2020s, having won one in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It would be it'd be an extraordinary career. Like and, and Nathan, when you mentioned there, the I guess the slander of Ancelotti that's been on this show in the past. Like I'm, I'm not sure who even that is. Like what's what's your personal take on it? Like and and how many current managers would you have ahead of him in terms of the the great European managers? In terms of uh, European history, or just right now? Like if <laughs> are you giving him? Well, he has one of the biggest jobs. Different managers have different ways, and like Pep Guardiola couldn't be more the opposite on the sideline than Carlo Ancelotti's. You see, Ancelotti's reaction to everything is nothing to do with me, both the good <laughs> and the bad. It's not like he's trying to claim credit for, for the good stuff either, it seems. Whereas Guardiola is you know, pulling the strings. I, I always go back to watching Manchester City, Manchester United about four years ago, and I spent the whole game pretty much watching Guardiola was sitting right behind them. It's like and the Danilo Damien was Duff playing right back. Well, yes, Damien Duff-Shelburne, of course. Uh, he was Danilo was playing it right back. It was the game where City were about to win the league and United came back. Pogba, probably his best game in United jersey. But Danilo stood right in front of Pep Guardiola. And I don't think he did a single thing in that first half that Pep Guardiola didn't tell him to do. So he stood there and he waited almost ready to pounce and he'd be in the sprinter's position, ready to run up the wing. And he would rate from the shout from Guardiola to go. Like that's how hands-on he was. That whether it was a lack of trust in the player or a tactic that was there, but everything he did, it was the manager telling him in every moment to do it. 
And that's not. That's not what a coach should do. Like that, but that's not what well, a coach should do. You know, and that's kind of the mad thing about him. Like you know, basically the coach should like be able to sit off and do very little. And even even at League of Ireland level, it's interesting to observe the difference. Like I was at the Rovers in the all game recently. Stephen Bradley and Stephen O'Donnell totally different. Stephen O'Donnell would be more living at all. Bradley's just taken. But, like you should trust your players. Basically, know what to do in a game situation. Gee, Stephen O'Donnell really lives at all. He does. <laughs> he just but he's, by, like. he, he just like he's. And you can see he's he's not that long from like being a player himself. And when when you make the wrong pass or you don't like um, do exactly what he would have done in that situation, you can see that frustration. And for me, that was exactly like that with um, the Mares Foden thing last night with Guardiola. Is like, how do you not square the ball? It's the most obvious thing ever. But does it make a difference? And you know, if we had a former player on, and I think we've spoken about this before with Kilban, who would feel that you know players once the game is on take little or no notice of what the manager is saying on the sideline or doing on the sideline. But you certainly don't want the manager sort of making a fool of himself on the sideline at, at the same time. Uh, like Guardiola is different. He obviously had a lack of trust maybe in that player. But I do think, you know, if you're losing it, absolutely losing it on the sideline at a player consistently can't but affect him in some way. So, sorry, mm-hmm. go back to the original point. Like, Ancelotti clearly has a way of managing of managing players maybe more than coaching players and being able to allow them perform in the best possible manner. So he's always going to get big jobs. Is he suited to Everton? Was he suited to Everton? I'm not quite sure. It doesn't seem like he possibly was, but you know, is he in that circle of just going from Real Madrid and maybe someday he'll end up at Juventus? Like he's never going to be stuck for cash. He's never going to be stuck for a job. Yeah. But is he going to come in and transform a side it definitely, it definitely feels as if Real Madrid have like stumbled upon a couple of managers who are perfect for that dressing room from Zidane to Ancelotti and it could end up being the exact same outcome in terms of winning the Champions League. There's been a big reaction obviously to, to what's happening just before you come back in there Nathan. Michael says very enjoyable game but lack of any defence was frustrating. Shifty Lad says Kenny Cunningham would need counselling after that match. Michael <laughs> Collins says City will regret not putting this game beyond Real Madrid last night if they get Casemiro back then they have a real chance excuse the pun in Madrid and MJ Maloney once has a course City go there and dominate didn't Chelsea go there two weeks and better them and should have gone through City are a far better side City will go there and win easily uh, do you share that level of confidence Nathan? Well they should do on the basis of last night's performance and as that texter said on the basis that they're a far better side than Chelsea are they should it would, wouldn't be a shock in any way it would be very much along the form lines of the talent in the two squads of City went there and won well but that ain't how this works that is not how this works, and it hasn't been how it's worked for Manchester City throughout Champions League recent history or for Real Madrid. So I wouldn't be at all surprised if we had more of the same again next week. It's a, it's a failure of Guardiola if they don't get through this because they're just a, they're a far better team than Real. They have like... Um, they have is the, it though? Yeah, it is because this is like... You can you can see on the sideline last night he's kind of losing the plot a bit like that. This game isn't over and done with. Um, they should be winning this game, simple as. They should be. But who, who do you blame for them not being out of the sight last night? You can't blame Guardiola for that, really. N- not last night. They have two legs, so just go over there and get the job done. Like Liverpool would get the job done against Real Madrid, no problem. Like They would literally just win this game because that's what they do. Like So, Man City, the whole situation with Guardiola is that like they okay, they will win the league... Um, 
you know, every other year if they don't win it this year. They should win the Champions League under his watch and if they don't do it this year, he, he feels that I think they should do it and like they should be winning this game. They've better resources, they've better players. Like they conceded three goals at home against Real Madrid. It, it was quite funny last night that immediately after Pep gets booked, Real Madrid go and score. Like I'm not sure it has a, a, like a, a real impact at all. I don't think Fernandinho is suddenly going to become fast if Pep Guardiola uh, doesn't get booked in that moment. But I, I think like, other than that, there's... I don't think there's very much you could look at from Pep last night. Like as when you could very much make the case that the Fernandinho thing after he gets that assist is something that worked out and is a bit of a masterstroke. Of course, I mean the other side of things maybe go against him. So maybe they're, they're a goal up going to they're, they're a goal up going to Madrid. Just get the job done, like simple as. Yeah, yeah. Like I, we like, we have to see how it plays out. I think there mm. have been a very specific moments over the last couple of years where you're like, that's clearly your fault, Pep. Mm. But I think from the first half of this game. And this two-legged tie, I think you can say you'd be clutching at straws. I think to say yeah. this is Pep's fault, but in a wider sense, of course, it'd be a failure of Pep's tenure if he wasn't to win a Champions League with the squad that he has, with the resources that they have, and, and some of the positions that they've been in as well, and in some of these these big ties. Um, so it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. Uh, who was the best player in the pitch last night, Nathan? In in your view, Otto Bruyne, I think. Yeah. Again, I just feel his game has gone to another level over over the last few weeks. The match against Liverpool, uh, even if you think back, and there were similar moments last night, think back to that late, late chance that Riyad Mahrez had against Liverpool. Like De Bruyne is driving through the middle. Was it Van Dijk who was all over the back of him? And he still had the strength to be able to hold him off, to be able to lift his head, to be able to pick out this otherworldly pass. And he did that time and time again last night. So, listen, De Bruyne, it's no shock that he is one of the best players in the world. But he is doing it in the biggest games and being the outstanding player in a pitch full of outstanding players, uh, which is a difficult thing to do. I still still look at Phil Foden every time I see him and go, it's almost because he's at Manchester City and they've so many good players and they don't rely on him in some ways that, you, you know, you don't look at Manchester City and think, well, if Phil Foden doesn't turn up, Manchester City won't be able to win a game. Uh, that we haven't fully come around to appreciating his genius. Like he might well be the best young footballer in world football. Uh, it's not a it's not a startling uh, a revelation to say such a thing. But he is a big game player. Every big match already for City, he starts and he performs, and he has an unbelievable ability to just keep hold of the ball, off balance, under pressure, tight angles, like his close control. Again, go back to that Liverpool game and go back because I was sat watching it at the stadium and you're kind of noticing things off the ball. But he didn't get involved in the game maybe as much as City would have wanted. But every time he got it, he did the right thing. And he'll try a trick. He'll have that little bit of confidence. Like at 21, to be doing it at that level, you, know, you don't want to get into wild predictions, but you know, he could well be talking about English football's greatest ever player if he keeps going at the rate he's going at. Like, and I, I think that whenever Manchester City put in a performance like they did last night, you, you start to wonder, you know, has Pep Guardiola finally settled on his first choice front three? And, and it's hard to hard to suggest that like Mahrez, Jesus and Foden wouldn't do the job in the Bernabeu. And I wonder, has the last two games of football for Gabriel Jesus completely changed how, or slightly changed how Manchester City view his future at the club? I wonder, I wonder, would he have started last night if he hadn't scored the fourth weekend? I don't know. You know, he did, and then he scored twice last night. Uh, I you just can't see Pep not doing something at the Bernabeu. That's you know, maybe Sterling will come in and play in the left, and Foden will play at the false nine, or maybe De Bruyne plays in a more advanced role. And Gundogan comes in, and 
something will happen, something will change. Is he going to stick with that front three of Marius, Jesus and Foden? He never does it. He never just sticks with the same front three. So that does feel like their best front three. It's the more orthodox front three. It's the more uh, sort of boring, straightforward front three in a way of Marius naturally on the right, Foden naturally on the left and Jesus, you know, as a goal scorer and a poacher and just plays through the middle. Uh, but that's never how Pep looks at it. Uh, Mark Johnson's been in touch to say City spend billions and score lots of goals but God they can't defend for their lives they are overrated how can they be the best team where they have no defence Liverpool have it perfect they have an unbelievable defence <laughs> like this crit- goals happen in games you see the exact same criticism of Liverpool defensively with the high line and how they get caught out and how can a team with that quality of defenders like, that's football it's not just straightforward and running in straight lines and a simple thing. Like teams are always going to create opportunities. They're playing Real Madrid. Yes, Manchester City have a deeper squad and have more resources right now and should win that game. This is a Champions League semi-final. You're always going to give up opportunities. Like you give up that opportunity against Burnley. You know, Valverde probably doesn't stick it away, but Karim mm-hmm. Benzema sticks it away. Like that's the level you're playing at. And yeah, they were way more open last night than you would expect from Manchester City. But a defence of Ruben Diaz and Emerton Porter, maybe it, under, you know, it, it, it just shows the importance of the full-backs that he has settled on, of, of having Walker at right-back and Cancelo at left-back, even though I think Zinchenko is brilliant. But having the two of them and their ability to move into midfield and the support they give midfield, maybe that closes all of that down and Stones and Zinchenko don't offer that and that gives a bit more protection to the back too. But it's a Champions League semi-final. You're always going to give up chances. So to say that they're weak defensively is... An absolute nonsense. Yeah, it's the second leg. They should be able to manage its second leg defensively because, like, they can. They'll be stepping back a bit and playing it on the break, and that's that's where you get it done. Like for last night, they're a goal up. Um, it was a mad game, but the second leg, just like be be, be you know be, be be assured at the back and basically be able to hit them on the break, and they should be able to win the game. I, I think that's just like the perfect recipe for there to be a complete bottle job for Manchester City. <laughs> the, the, the first the first few minutes, you're like. Mm, this does not feel like yeah. you're on the front foot like the last game and that's why you can see the photo now can't you after Real Madrid win the second leg which will be man, it'll be a photo from last night Manchester City are leading 2-0 Riyad Mahrez is clear through and goal with Phil Foden free in the middle and it's how did Manchester City conspire to lose this yeah. from like, this position I think you love to see that's like the Sterling Leon opportunity really isn't it that that screenshot mm. that, that does the rounds or, or Sterling celebrating against Tottenham in uh, 2019 the, the sort of uh, photos that happened before unfortunate events happen and Manchester City have been in a hell of a lot of them just before we move on to, to Liverpool just to like pay tribute to, to Karen Benzema uh, like uh, after his um, after the game last night he was talking about the Penenka and he says I always have it in my head that if you don't take a penalty you will never miss a penalty that's my mental confidence and that's all I have a lot of confidence in myself and I kind of felt that you know he got a laser to the face while stepping up to the penalty and I think it was at that moment that he decided I'm going to Penenka this I'm like screw you Manchester City fan with the laser I'm going to try and do this in the most embarrassing way possible the quality of his first strike is like the, ah. it's, just, it's just like I mean I, you just like what he's doing Nathan at, at his age and like at a, at a time when the game was slipping away from them that first strike is just like amazing technique he's at that level that few players get to that everything seems to slow down when he's around that it makes it look so so simple and it's not just his finishing it's his all-round play how he can make the ball stick again the confidence he has to try a little back heel or a little flick in a dangerous position and for it to come off all the time and then to try a Penenka considering you know missing his last couple of penalties 
as some say, is it a full Penenka if the ball isn't dipping by the time it hits the goal? Like he, he did, he did give it a fair belt for yeah. Penenka. It was one of those just under the crossbar uh, type jobs. But I, we've gone so deep into football analysis in recent years. Like a penalty is no longer just a penalty. We want the entire thought process of. So Everson would he have tried early. it under Guardiola? Oh yeah, I think I think Benenza would have. Mm. Benenza, uh, Benzema would have tried it under any manager. Uh, Maybe like this is like beside the point here, but like, is it really difficult to aim a laser at someone because it like hits his face beforehand, and it's like, okay, well, this is going to happen for the penalty, and then the laser just disappears. Is the guy in the crowd like aiming wildly and actually just can't find him before taking the strike? I don't know how far away he's. Like, if you have 150 of them in 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 an African game, maybe it's a little bit different. But um, didn't put him off anyway. No, certainly not. When did lasers come back into fashion? Yeah. Johnny, when we were in school, do you remember when? I'm I'm saying because obviously we're from a different generation to our own. Our Uh, Irish teacher used to have like... Used to be able to... Oh, on the back of the head. On the back of the head all day. Could could your Irish teacher have stuck away at Penenka after such an incident? Under that sort of pressure? No, no, he wasn't able for the pressure of the laser on the the board. So no, I don't think so. Mm. Um, Liverpool tonight... Nathan, uh, are you like? There's been this interesting kind of uh, narrative about uh, Liverpool won't underestimate Villarreal uh, the way the previous two giants who've been taken up by Villarreal underestimated them. Are we sure that's what happened in the last two rounds, though? That Villarreal just got underestimated. Like I'm sure there's a degree of that, but are we not looking at Unai Emery, who's actually uh, deep down a bit of a genius when it comes to figuring out these one-off games? I guess over two legs, but still, he's he's proven himself over the last two rounds. Yeah, I think there's. Uh got to be a bit of respect given to Real if you get to a Champions League semi-final and you'd question the mentality of the players in previous rounds if they're underestimating in you know, a Champions League last 16 or quarter-final what a team can bring uh, on paper as Johnny said these are the sort of games Liverpool win been at home in the first leg you know, is it quite the magical Anfield night but if they can get an early goal like they have shown over the last week they can sort of win anyway they come out against Manchester United like two games against almost similar tonight with less emotion but the last two games where you look at Manchester United and Everton two matches they really should win but you think it's United and Everton something will happen and they just come out and absolutely blitz Manchester United from the first minute never give them a sniff and then they go up against Everton who make it an absolute dogfight uh, and a real scrap and a messy game and they just stay patient and they use the depth that they have and they make the changes off the bench and they're able to do it that way. So it does feel as though they're in a very good place right now that whatever Villarreal bring tonight, that Liverpool will have an answer for it, whether it's in the starting eleven or whether it's it's off the bench. But are you going to sit here and say that Liverpool are going to have this done after the first leg? I, I don't think so. Like That's not how Villarreal is set up. Like they, they, they are the underdogs. They're used to being the underdogs. They're used to having teams come, dominate possession, expect to win games. So... It could end up in a little bit tighter than than people expect. Colm's just making the point in my ear here that Unai Emery is Porto era Jose Mourinho. Uh, like I think he's. Uh, like I mean, it's, no, it's, no, it's not. He's not. He's not. He's not in any way in that. Well, that's the only comparison because, firstly, you know, Jose Mourinho was the new kid on the block. Uh, even he came up in Sky Sports. Uh, Premier League seasons yesterday and you're still looking back at Jose in his first press conference and the charisma just oozing off like what a bloody good looking man he was there still is but you know nearly 20 years ago he just comes in and you know changes English football but that Porto team also had a group of players who were at an age that they were all going to kick on and go around Europe and go to Chelsea 
and be major players in European football over the next five, ten years. Uh, this Villarreal side is at a slightly different stage. Yes, some of them, I'm sure, will move on during the summer, but there's a lot of good, hardened professionals in there as well who are at a slightly later stage of their career who can, you know, who will they all go during the summer? I don't think so. So I, I don't know if that's a if that's a real comparison. Europa League Champions League is just this uh, clarification there. Also, okay. I mean, who are you to say that Unai Emery isn't a, isn't a handsome man? I would never cast aspersions than any other man. Uh, Connor Joyce says, how do you know it was a man with a laser? Uh, he asks, I don't. It's a very good point. Yeah, if you watch uh, watch all the uh, the FBI file shows, it's always a man who commits to crime. But um, in fairness to Ancelotti, like Nathan, like you mentioned... Like Mourinho, Ancelotti at his age has evolved and can still manage the dressing room. Whereas you, you look at Mourinho and you compare him to that port, those Porter days, and it's like, well, you, you didn't change enough. No, but again, you're like Ancelotti seems to be a very different type of character from most modern managers in that he never gets massively emotional. Like Jose, still just can't help himself against getting caught up in it. Either referees, opposition, his own players. Uh, Whereas actually, baby, just been a bit more solid, relaxed, chilled out is how you keep going into your 60s. Because it does feel a bit sad now when you see Mourinho. Mm. He pops up after another Roma game and he's doing the same things. You go, like, where's that guy gone? Even, even at his worst, even at his worst at Chelsea or at Real Madrid when he was up to no good, just still, there's still something there about Mourinho that was, was captivating, that was quite likable, that was a bit of a rogue. Whereas now, it's all got a little bit boring. Yeah. Like, so, like is there... A case we made that then when Pep and Klopp are kind of done with their current Manchester City and Liverpool jobs respectively, there's just a stage where they're like, I'm kind of done with this because, you know... Fight climate change. Fight climate change could be a good start, but they just might find that their high-octane, high-energy style of management is, you know, you get to a certain age and it's like, okay, going to park that. Well, Pep's done it before and stepped away. And you'd expect when he leaves City that he'll you know step away again for a couple of years before. Like, these guys can't give it up. Yeah. Well, you do want to. It's one thing I never understand in football. Like Stephen Gerrard and Frank Lampard, I just can't understand it. Yeah. Like, I cannot understand why Frank Lampard is managing Everton. Like, he has it all. He has all the money he'll ever need. He's one of English football's greatest ever players. Yet somehow he needs to put himself through this. And it's going to end in failure. Like, nice life. It's going to end in like nine, like nine out of ten managerial careers. Essentially, they they get sacked and that's their last job. Like, so why would you do it? Like, there's so much else going on in the world. Why would you get immersed in this? just some sort of weird addiction but also like the appeal to add to your legacy like if Frank Lampard Frank Lampard's getting into management because he but thinks he's never going to add to his legacy no, but he yeah. thinks, there's he nothing thinks Frank he can. Lampard can do now that is going to add to his legacy maybe at the start when he got the Chelsea gig and you win the Champions League and you're yeah. you know, suddenly you're past John Terry as their greatest ever legend but now to go to Everton is he a hero around Everton because he saves them from relegation on the last day of the season I don't know if he is. No, but he's, he's seeing that as a stepping stone back to the to, to the big time, and like he, it's not about what the the reality is. It's about what these guys think they can achieve. And I mean, they didn't get to where they were in football without thinking that they were the absolute best around. It's it's the thinking as well, though. Like if you're if you're like the wife of like Guardiola and or Klopp or these characters, like I mean, what sort of life is that? Like, do they think about anything else in the whole day other than the next game or the last game or football? Like it's. It's but they don't have time. They don't yeah. have time. I, I, I noticed that after the Liverpool match at Guardiola's press conference. When you sit down and think about it, he was talking about the intensity of the calendar. And they played Liverpool on the Sunday evening. And they were playing Champions League on the Wednesday. 
And you're thinking, like, this mm. is a massive game. So they barely have a training session on the Monday, but you suddenly have to prep for that. You travel to the match on the Tuesday, you play Wednesday. Then they're back playing again in the Premier League on Saturday. Like, you Never mind, you know, think about life outside. You, you, you never get a day off. You never get every single hour, every minute. None of them can be wasted because of the intensity of the calendar and the importance of the game. So, yeah, how how they switch off, how they somehow stay mentally stable under that level of pressure, I have no idea. Donny OD88 has been in touch asking, has Johnny mentioned Gavin Bazunu or the League of Ireland yet? Uh, we still have time. Just, yeah. yeah. Anything, um, anything to say about Bazunu or the League of Ireland? Um, he missed out on the team of the year, actually, Bazunu in League One, which I thought was um, surprising because I, I would have imagined he was he was the best uh, keeper in the league. Um Interesting point, Nathan, as your father will know well about Shivan Rovers. Gavin Bazuna actually played in Kaline. Um played for Shamrock Rovers underage in a game in Kaline uh, in the Shivan wow. Rovers pitch. Yeah. So I was I think you're gonna build a statue in his honour. Probably will, yeah. Um I was there for his debut as well against Bray when kind of I think the whole Shamrock Rovers story changed when they put the sixteen year old kid in goal and he saved that penalty against uh, Sadler in uh, Cork and um I don't know. We've we've uh, we're in a good place in terms of our defenders and our goalkeeper for the time being. I think anyway. For sure. Is, is there LOI late night coming your way this Friday? There is. Nathan, I've, I've been the off the last two Fridays. I've been off the last two Fridays. Uh, so we've left Johnny and Shane. I, I I think there's no real reason for me to return. Just go back to relaxing on a uh, on a Friday night. But uh, yeah, we're going to be back. Uh, it's a pretty the League of Ireland calendar uh, is. You know, it like everything else is uh, a bit screwed up in that there's so many games at the start of the season. And I was looking at the Shamrock Rovers fixture list, uh, sort of trying to plan out uh, for the kids as to when and where we're going to game. So they're away this week, um, Rovers. But then they've got three home games in the space of seven days against Finn Harp, Sligo and Derry. And then over the next two months, they've got two home matches. Like, yeah. How clubs are meant to try and flourish when that's how your fixture list works out, I'm never quite sure. And like, they're not alone. Most clubs are in that sort of scenario. So from what I think is the 13th of May all the way through to the 22nd of July, two home matches. There, there, there is a wider point here in that um, you now have like billionaires getting involved in investing in the League of Ireland, whether that's for like the reasons of making money or for something else. If you have like... Comers are going to take over Galway United in terms of um, an 85% stake. You fill up with Artie and Derry and you've Dermot Desmond. Uh, I think he owns a quarter of Shamrock Rovers. Um, and there's probably never been a better time to invest. And Nathan will attest to this as well. Tala is becoming like... Um, I don't know, Nathan. It feels like a, something different in the League of Ireland. You go there now and you just expect six, 7,000 people are to be sold out. It's a nice stadium. You expect a very good quality of football. A lot of kids there... And the League of Ireland is, I guess, that's where it wants to be. Yeah, and listen, as I'm sure all supporters of other clubs are ready uh, to get in touch, Shamrock Rovers Stadium, you know, was there because of a partnership, a mm. government partnership. You could say they were handed the stadium, but more clubs need to be handed stadiums. More clubs need to be given facilities because people will go if the facilities are there. And there were some stats out yesterday. I think uh, was it a somebody up north, Johnny, who was tweeting, "Look what Niall Quinn has done for the League of Ireland with the rise in average attendance over the last couple of years." But the rise in average attendance from 2017, 2018 to now is clubs, every club, pretty much doubling their average attendance. So people are buying in, and I think they're buying in not because of 
you know, I don't think quality of football is ever a factor or will ever be a driving factor in why people go. I wouldn't agree with that. No. I, I, I don't think so because like the quality of football is is good, but I don't think that can be the selling point because you know you've got right. Is next that not door. the whole point though? Like, I mean, well, like, no, I think it's to go like fo- fo- you can have a good, entertaining game of football without it being the same quality as a, a Premier League match. I think but, people want to go and enjoy a match, be entertained, see some goals, but also go and have a, a decent seat, be able to go and buy something at half time. Uh, like, they just want to go and have a night out. So. Yeah, I, I I I don't know about that though. Like, if you if if you're fed on a diet of you know the endless TV and um, Premier League and everything else, like I don't think like the League of Ireland, the quality of the football in terms of the entertainment spectacle has gone way way up, and I'm not sure you could get away with it if it weren't. I don't know, has it? Oh, like, is the quality? I think I think it's got better because oh, football when, when naturally I start, has got better. Yeah, there is, there is that as well. Teams now play far more football. You know, there's far less just hoofing it up. You know, unless you go down Moscow United, maybe. But most teams now are keeping it on the ground, uh, playing a decent bit of ball. Uh, but I, 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 what I'm saying is that you can't. It's not. It's obviously never going to be comparable to the quality you will see on a Tuesday night in the Champions League. I think it needs what it needs as a selling point is something else. The football will take care of itself. It needs to be whether it's that community side of it. Or just making it a good Friday night, which I think is what a lot of people have done. Like Friday nights now are League of Ireland night. It's something to do that's not going to the pub. You know you'll have a bit of crack. You know you'll see a decent game of football. You'll have the opportunity to see players who in two, three years' time be able to tell your mates, oh, I remember watching him, as Johnny just said, down in Shivan Rovers. Uh, and now he's a superstar. So I think they're the things that... You can relate to it as well. Out. Like it was, I watched the game with Adrian Taft last night. It was the LMFM commentaries for Ed and Dawk. He's saying, like, I'm a Man United fan, but like I just I can't relate to this anymore. Like When you go to League of Ireland game, you might meet them on the street. They're, they're not on massive money. Like um, you know, They're probably struggling to get a mortgage. Um, I can relate to these players and like it means something to me. Being a Manchester United fan is probably half the problem in terms of not being able to relate to a team, <laughs> to be fair. Uh, Nathan, good stuff this morning. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. Right, we are turning our attention back to Manchester City for Real Madrid 3 in the first leg of their Champions League semi-final. Delighted to welcome Mark Lawrenson to the show. Morning, Mark. Good morning. How are we after that last night? Oh, pretty good. Uh, Pep Guardiola says he's pretty good as well. He says, no complaints about the results, the performance, anything. I'm so proud of the way we perform in front of the world. We did everything to win and with courage, with the ball, without the ball. Do you think he's really that happy? Do you think he's going to wake up this morning with a, with a few regrets? More than a few, potentially? Yeah. yeah, he'll have a few regrets. I mean, you know, certainly at 4-2, if he could have closed the game off then... Um, that would have been obviously the two goal cushion would have been would have been massive. I think it was just one of those games. You get them occasionally, don't you? I mean, Madrid can only ever play that way, and I suppose in 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 different reasons as well. City can be a bit like that where they're always going forward. But um, he won't be happy about the goals that they conceded. But you've got a one goal lead, and, and probably if you'd said to him you get a one goal lead from the first leg, he would have taken it. Did Manchester City in certain moments underperform defensively? Did they have to eye up the ball? Was it the anxiety of the occasion? Or or what, what do you put that down to, conceding three goals? Um, probably that Benzema frightens them to death, like mm. everybody. Um, and the, and they were probably, and you know, you're just on the edge that little bit. I mean, City aren't, City aren't that great defensively. And before everyone starts shouting at me, it's, it's because generally all the games that they play, nearly all the games that they play, they've, they've got 70% possession. So they've always got the ball. The opposition never have it. But, you know, even we saw the goal that Watford scored against them at the weekend. It's 
just just that the way the way that they are and against Madrid, Madrid are always going to make chances because again they're a team who just the, the whole ethos is you know entertaining football, going forward, scoring goals, and they've had an outstanding uh, season as well in the league in La Liga. I think do they only need a point now and they clinch the title? Um, but in Benzema, they've got a player that's in an incredible run of form. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely frightening. And I mean, the old Penenka was just, it was like, it, that was, the, the game was wow. And that was like, oh my God, what has he just done? It does seem that there's like this vein of ice cool attitudes throughout this entire Real Madrid squad from Benzema in that moment to Madrid in midfield mm. to Ancelotti even on the sideline. Like it, it, like how hard is it to be able to produce that level of calmness in those big, big nights where any ordinary human being, despite how talented they might be, would ordinarily crumble or, or do the rash thing? Well, I think, but the thing is just talent, isn't it? It's absolute talent. And um, and if you think about the Benzema thing as well, he missed two penalties that weekend, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. So, so you, you can imagine, and apparently I saw something uh, Ancelotti was saying that He'd, he'd practice or something the day before or, I don't know, a couple of days before and he'd made his mind up that if he got a pen that he was going to take a penenka, which, when you think about it, is like mad because the way the game was going, surely, surely as he's running up, he's, he's, he's thinking to himself, he's like, well, should I still do it? Because if I, if I fail and it just, the goalkeeper stands still and it like, it, it, it just goes into his arms. It's like, I'm going to look an absolute fool. But, um, Fair play to him. But, you know, that's the thing. I think, you know, that run of form, he just probably thinks at the moment he can do anything. Um, although, obviously, at the weekend he couldn't because he missed two pens. So it's it's mad, isn't it? What they're doing at their age as well, Oro, like, I mean, um, the pace of the game for Benzema and Modric to be able to perform mm. at this level, I, I just can't get my head around it. No, can I, can I say something about that? Which I think is um, players, players are playing much older now. I think, you know, because you look at Ronaldo and those, and those kind of guys, just just the way that they train, um, the diet, uh, you know, as I say, what, everything they eat, the way they look after themselves, a lot of them don't drink anymore, all those kind of things. And what it's doing is it's extending people's contracts. So when you used to look at a player who's 31, 32, you think, oh, his legs are about to go. That seems to be about 35 now. And and I think that's that's a difference. And I think, you know, that like the Modric's and, and the Benzema, they are very much the hub of that side as well. And you might say that the team's built around them. Well, it is, isn't it? So and what you will have is that, that people, because they're such good players, if you're playing alongside Modric, you don't mind if you're charging around trying to close people down because the bottom line, both with Modric and Benzema, is they win your games and they win your games at the very highest level generally. I think I think Salah is the interesting one there. Like, how long can he, and in terms of his contractual situation, how long does Klopp think that he's going to be able to be good enough to play for Liverpool? And how long will his legs withstand the ridiculous, ridiculous schedule that he's had over the last few years and be the player that, like, I don't know, he's, at this stage of the season, he's been, like, peak Salah, I think. Like, how long, Lauro, does Salah have to be the player that he is at the moment? I would think he's got at least at least a couple more years, mm. at least. Um, so, but the, see, you know, what I say about the diet now, they're so they're so well looked after these lads. And um, yes, yes, they train extremely hard, but they train extremely hard at the start of the season. He has sometimes when he takes them away to, I think he takes them away to the mountains in Austria or somewhere, Klopp, and they do triple sessions. 
And apparently it's like, you know, get get on with it. And that, that the whole thing about triple session is that's that's the thing that gets you ready for not just the start of the season, but all of all of the season. And you know, there's one thing about it as well. Sometimes you do feel like you're super fit and you and you can do it, do everything. But as I say, I think you know, um, 31, 32. I just don't think it's an issue anymore. I mean, his his contract's still an issue. Um, it, it looks like it's stalemate at the moment, and um, I think that's over money. I don't think it's over anything else. So not, it's not over terms and conditions because he's been there long enough. So mm. whether whether that's sorted, I'm not sure. Like just on that point, it'll be really interesting to see the graph of Kevin De Bruyne now over the next little while because he's going to be 31 in the summer. And mm. if you take these last couple of months in isolation, mark the post Christmas. Kevin De Bruyne is the best version of Kevin De Bruyne we've seen in years, consistently speaking. Anyway, like he's been in and out of the team with unbelievable uh, runs of form over the last couple of seasons. But injuries have obviously hampered him a little bit. It seems right yeah. now he's operating at close to, to peak De Bruyne. Yeah, oh, he's brilliant, and you know, he sees things that mere mortals don't see on a football pitch. He's also strong. He's, he's a good finisher. And he has a free role in that team. And he's allowed he's allowed breathers as well. I mean, that's the thing about it. If you, you're, you're a Pep Guardiola and you, he's your best player, he is the only player at Man City that you cannot replace, I believe. So you, you will give, you will give, you'll cut him some slack occasionally. Uh, you might leave him out for, for the odd game. But also in a game, in, in games occasionally, you know, just have a little bit of a breather for 30 seconds and, and, and then go again. And it's clever management. You know, it's just, you know, make, make sure your best player is in the best form, the best uh, health and give him everything you possibly can to make him the outstanding player that he is. But also, I think he's very, very honest. You can see that, can't you? And he, he doesn't mind a tackle, by the way. And uh, he'll, he'll put his foot in. But uh, he's, yeah, he's brilliant. But they can't replace him. And we've seen that in a, in a couple of games where they've obviously struggled without him. Everybody would struggle without him, wouldn't they? If you are a kid, like, um, and we were all kids watching footballers when we were younger, you just look mm. at him and you're like, this is what I want to be. Yeah. Yeah, and then and what it is, is then you go in your garden, don't you, and try and replicate what, what, what he, he does and stuff. Yeah, he's just, look, he's just absolutely brilliant. But, I mean, they've got lots. They've got lots of players. Uh, Foden. For, for instance, look, you know, Silver, the way he's been playing, and all, all, all those kind of players. But yeah, he, last night's going back to last night's game. I mean, they should just package that and send it around the world. And mm. I mean, the Premier League is the best league in the world. Liverpool and Man City are the two best club teams in the world, without argument. Um, and, and long may it be so, but um, I don't think we'll be getting that tonight somehow at Anfield. Yeah, this but, is the point though. Like they are like Manchester City, they are essentially the best team in the world at the moment. They need to win the Champions League. They need to win the Champions yeah. League, and this, this yeah, is yeah. it. Yeah, they, they 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 would if they could do a deal with Liverpool, which was like you win the, you win the league and we win the Champions League. They would do, and mm. you know they're owned by a country, and that and the, and the owners basically want to win the Champions League because that's the highest highest league they could possibly win, the most prestigious league they can possibly win, and. Obviously, they're throwing a lot of money at it and everything, but uh, yeah, they they want to win the Champions League. No, no argument whatsoever. That's the thing as well. Like, okay, the, you can you can talk about the you know the ownership situation and the fact that it's a very unfair world. It's very unfair with football. 
Guardiola is not happy. He's not happy at all leaving this Man City role unless they win the Champions League. And you know that. Yeah. You can you can tell that last night, Laura, when they were tuning up. And obviously, we talked about Mares and the not squaring to Foden. He is mm. he's not he's just not happy unless they win the Champions League because he knows that for him is failure. Yeah, but also he's driven. So the thing you just talked about, the, the failure not to see it pass, that he hates it because he just wants. He's a perfectionist. And he, he doesn't want 9.75 out of 10. He wants 10 out of 10. And, and you get that with him. And um, I don't know if you saw... Um, who, who was the former captain, centre-back, now at Anderlecht, is, is um, company. company, Vincent Company. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you hear it? Did you see his uh, interview at the weekend? No, I didn't, he, actually. He, right. And he was just saying, he, he was just saying, that, you know, when you, when you used to play for, for Guardiola, and Guardiola, he said, Guardiola would say to you, it, it make you understand why you did what you did when you were playing, like not what you did at the time, but why, why, why this is the way that it. And he said he just completely opened company's mind up to something completely different. And he struggled for the first few years, you know, company at Manchester City, and they weren't a very good team, as we know. But he just said he's easily the best coach he's ever he's ever played under because he made him. Think about absolutely everything he did on the football pitch in a completely different way. He's a genius, um, and he's he also the way he's like he's effectively kind of um, making an evolution in the game where you can essentially play without a striker, and you even see that now at League of Ireland level where clubs are like. They, they, they think if we have enough possession or if we have enough kind of bodies in the middle that we, we can have enough pace that we don't need a, a front player, and he's he yeah. is a genius. Yeah, but you've got to have some team not to have a front player. Yeah, like do, do you, like I mean, say if this team now wins the the Champions League this season, I know this is very much not the the, the number one uh, element of all this, or it won't be the number one storyline. But it'll be very interesting mm. to see how they would utilize Erling Haaland next season if the reports would be to believe that he he does join well, Manchester City because that's a piece of the jigsaw you kind of have to use. I know Pep Guardiola is not a hostage to anybody, but you kind of have to play Haaland in your number nine position, which for me completely changes how they set up, especially in the context of last night. Yeah. Yeah, and the other thing, if you really watch Haaland, he, he comes on to loads of stuff. There's a lot, there's a lot of grass between him and the goal. Generally, just the way that that he plays in Germany. So, you know, it's a, it'll take a little bit of tweaking from uh, from Manchester City's point of view. But um, look, you know, he's a he's a top top goal scorer, and he's young and he's strong. And and why wouldn't why wouldn't you utilize the fact that he's he's, he's going to be an out? Well, he's already an outstanding striker, but he's going to be even better. And w- one thing about Guardiola is with, with all his players, and Klopp's been the same. Is he's improved all of them? Even if you think that you know he signed somebody who's a world class player, he's made them better, and they both have. And basically, that's that's the secret of coaching, isn't it? If, if you get all these players in and they're already very good, and you can make them in many cases world class, then you're always going to win the majority of games and and win trophies and leagues and cups and all sorts of things. This might be a weird question considering he was on the losing side last night or oversaw a defeat last night, but if we accept that Klopp and Pep are the number one and number two managers in the world and in a tier of their own in terms of managerial genius, where is this current version of Carlo Ancelotti? Yeah, well, I think he's he's so laid back now, isn't he? He's had had so many jobs and um, I think he's one of those with with being at Real Madrid. He He knows it's nuts, that club. It's absolutely, it's absolutely bonkers, but it is. But it, but it's a nice bonkers, and he knows that if he haven't, if he'd lost four games in a in the in the league this year, four games straight, he would have gone. And, and he knows that kind of stuff. So there's, I just think he's one of those now, whereas nothing surprises him. Um, he's going to play 
the players he wants to play, the way he wants the team to play. And you just watch him on the touchline. He's very sanguine, isn't he? It's just, he's not demonstrative or anything like that generally. And he knows he's got a good side. Um, what advice just, would he give to Frank Lampard, Laurel? What, what? What advice would he give to Frank Lampard at the moment? Would he give? Yeah. Well, he bailed out, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, get out. <laughs> he, he bailed out, so I'm, I'm guessing you know what advice he'd be giving. If as soon as a better job comes along, take it. Um, Frank Lampard, I mean, the thing thing with him is he's, he's just inherited a really a really poor side, hasn't he? That, that, that's the major problem. They can't defend Everton and... Um, you know, they actually did well for an hour against Liverpool, I thought, because, and people are moaning around me saying, oh, you know, they're diving, they're doing this and the other. Well, they're trying to do everything so that Liverpool couldn't score and put them out of the stride because they knew if, if they'd gone to play Liverpool at football, they'd be beaten four or five. But um, I think Frank Lampard will be okay. I have a sneaking suspicion. I know they're in the bottom three. I just have a sneaking suspicion they might just stay up, but it might be more to do with the teams below them and one above them rather than anything else. So, um, yeah, well, you can't give him advice on Chelsea because he cleared off, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. Probably the right decision. I think he touched on a good point. Ancelotti's like, yeah, okay, whatever happens here, you know, I'm, I, I've seen enough. Yeah. I can kind of chill, like. Yeah, like the, the yeah, thing. And you know, sorry, boys. Did you know the other other thing about him? I met him. He's an absolute top bloke. He's the coolest looking dude. Did you see that photo of him in his suit the other day, where he's like yeah. posing for the photo, like you know, if we're in our sixties, and like, yeah, he's just. What What about him? Made him such a top bloke. Well, he's just, he's just got, he's got like real wicked sense of humour and he's very, you know, whenever you, you talk to him, it's just like, look, you know, the, the waves wash over. He's just, he's just dead cool. And look, he's, he's had an absolutely fantastic career and this probably might be his last job, although you never know with these fellas. And you, you, you know, he's, he doesn't get uppity about anything. It's just, he's seen everything in life. He's seen everything in football. He was a top player as well himself he's obviously got loads of money loads of houses around the world I would have thought and, and you can just almost feel with him that when he finishes he's just going to like well lunch every day big cigar happy days feet up <laughs> sounds like the life until he gets the next job managing Real Madrid is easy yeah, yeah. Like. exactly until yeah. he gets the next job definitely <laughs> oh I think I'll just go and do this one as well they are 15 points clear at top of La Liga Manchester City are not 15 points clear at the top of the Premier League I know they're mm. playing Leeds United this weekend like it does seem the conversation we were having earlier on in the show very much points you know don't worry Manchester City are going to be fine next week they're not fine really though are they this is this is a hell of a no. battle next week especially if they need to go hammer and tongs at that game at Elland Road well it will be hammer and tongs won't it that's the only way Leeds know how to play um, the only thing about that is that that will suit City because Leeds are very open defensively as we know so even though they got a nil-nil at the weekend at Crystal Palace but um yeah, and everyone's looking at the fixtures, etc. But that's a great that's a great thing about the Premier League. And, you know, people say it all the time, there are no easy games. And people go, oh, well, you know, like Liverpool won four, five, City once scored seven, all those kind of things. But going into them, they are they are really tough games. And I don't get this and I've never I've never obviously played in La Liga or anything, but I've watched it. But I see I see some of the teams playing against the likes of, of Barca, obviously, and Atletico and Real Madrid and I kind of think you know what that there are easy games sometimes, but not in the Premier League. In, ter- in terms of the English game, right? So you look at like the the depth of the four divisions, and you see Bradford who are like stumbled along in the the middle of the table in the fourth tier of British football. Mm. 
getting 15,000 at their games regularly. If you canvassed the non-Man City fan last night going into the game in the Bernabeu, the English football fan, how many of them want Man City to win? How many of them want Real Madrid to win that second leg? Oh, I, th- I think most English people want City to win, would they not? I'm not sure. The, the, like, oh, right, okay. In terms of the soul of English football and what they represent... And and most most you know a lot of obviously a lot of football fans are not following the Premier League. They're following their their local team and they're they're following yeah. teams. And I I am interested. Like I don't, I don't I don't follow. Like I'm not going to games regularly. But like, do well, they want Man City to achieve this or do they probably not? for Foden yeah. and Stones and the English players? Mm. Yeah. Well, let's put it a different way. I mean, so so just say City get in the final and and you know just say it wasn't it wasn't against Liverpool against Spanish team whatever. City get in the final. Generally, English people will want. City to win, and I think you know, regardless whoever, whichever team you, you support, you would want you would want the English team to win because it's it's fantastic for the game, isn't it? And I did the something Premier- about the Real Madrid side, though, Laura, where you just well, want, you, you you want them you want them to do this. Like, I mean, the situations they've come they've overcome yeah. in this campaign. Like, I think I think there was. I'm I'm not. I think that's gone off a little bit. I, I get your point totally, but I think I think you know in Ronaldo's day, I know remember like all the superstars that they had. Listen, we talk about the other week City played Liverpool, biggest game in the world in club football. It was a little bit like watching all those years ago El Clasico, because you know Madrid and Barcelona. But those two teams are on the way, even even though the way that City, the way that Madrid played last night, they've they've been on the way in comparison to the to the way that they were. And I think in this football. Is better, but they're still a great watch, aren't they? They're a fantastic watch. Well, can I just ask Mark then? Obviously, we've already made a point that Liverpool and Manchester City are the two best teams in the world. Mm. Would there be a greater sense of anxiety from a Liverpool perspective if they get through the Villarreal clash about facing Real Madrid in the final? And by extension, is there actually a chance that Real Madrid are a bit more of a banana skin in the final for for Liverpool if it is them? No. No, I think okay. I think clearly not. I, they're, they're an inferior side. Like, I know they're an inferior yeah. side, as, as I've already you said. Can't, you can't just you can't. Yeah. It's that like that like not at all. Like Man City are they the best team in Europe and they won three uh, Champions League titles in a row. They were definitely a better team then than they were now. And maybe with Ronaldo, yeah. you can make an argument that they the, were. But the challenge, like if Man City, if Liverpool play Real Madrid, they win. It's as simple as that because they're a better side and they've been doing it all year. If they play Man City, there's a chance, there's a good chance they won't win because Man City are a slightly better side than Liverpool, and that's yeah. that's how. It is, yeah. The other thing as well is, is that 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 you know the Real Madrid side of how many years ago, you you never got the ball off them ever, ever, ever. Completely different now, and um, they were they were never brilliant defensively, but they had so many good players in midfield and, and going forward that they, they got away with it a little bit. They they can't get away with that anymore, and um, I think you know both both City and, and I think City will get through to be honest with you anyway. But you know, if and Liverpool, whoever whoever. If Liverpool were playing them in the final, I would think Liverpool would win, and and I would think they would win quite comfortably. Because the other thing about uh, Real Madrid is that is that you know they, they wouldn't be able to cope with the way that Liverpool play, um, because it's just the intensity intensity is is unbelievable, and um, the, the shape of of the team, the way that they play, the amount of chances they create, etc. I think they'd be far too strong for Madrid. Yeah, fair. I just, I just think that there's been a couple of moments throughout this year's Champions League where we could have made that argument about Real Madrid, and I think even in the context of last night, we could have made that argument about them that they should have been should have conceded well, six goals, and, and they didn't. They just didn't do it. They just have not folded at any point. And right. I, I would, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see Madrid Liverpool basically. Right. Let me give you this then, Paris Saint Germain. 
against Madrid. They honestly, they 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 lost it in twenty minutes, didn't they? Over the over the two games, and they lost it because it, I think they made a change which wasn't defensively when they were cruising in the in the uh, in the away leg in, in Madrid. And you might say, yeah, but you know, Madrid came back and they did this, that, and the other, and but you know. The problem with Paris Saint Germain is they they should have they should have been in in the semi-finals. And the problem with them is they have a system where they play seven three, and the seven have to do all the work for the three. But, but in a time like that, where you you're completely in control of the game in Madrid, you know, and your Neymar's and 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 Mbappe's and stuff aren't aren't chasing back. It's they don't have to do it, you know. And it's like sort it out, boys. You know, you're the you're the hard workers in the team. I mean. That's a fundamental problem with Paris Saint-Germain, but they they should have gone through. They really seriously should have gone through against uh, Madrid. It's, it's not a vintage Real side. Like if Real were in the Premier League, like they'd be really struggling to finish third. You'd imagine. I, I like just a, and this is a one-off yeah. game in a final. Like yeah. I think that plays into it. And but look, it's probably not going to happen. Manchester City are a better team, as you say. Liverpool are a better team than them as well. It probably won't happen. But I'm just I'm just very interested in the existence of this current Real Madrid side. Ancelotti looks like he doesn't even care, and yet like I mean, <laughs> yeah. they're only a goal behind against a team who should have absolutely smashed them last night. It just not, nothing makes sense about this Real team. It, 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 in Madrid, they should win, but you just ex- you just expect there's another narrative here that something's going to happen because yeah. I, well, I, I yeah I'm just not sure I'm not sure if Guardiola is perfect for Man City in the Champions League at the moment. In the sense that I'd say his anxiety is probably almost feeding into them. Well, his, his problem is is uh, well I'm saying problem it's 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 minute, but sometimes he tries to be too clever, and my only worry about about uh, City going to, to the Bernabeu would be he might do something which is a little bit different. He's, he's done it before, just change the system, change the team. I mean, Leon away two or three seasons away and they were cruising and he decided to play a completely different formation, which they haven't even played before as well, you know. Um, but, if, but if he's got his proper head on and picks his best team, I, I, don't, I don't see it being problem at all very quickly and listen, listen in, in, just going back a little bit with Madrid is the days you used to go to the Bernabeu and you get you used to get a, like a corner and you'd, you'd, you'd celebrate but nowadays you know teams in La Liga go in and, and score and score on a regular basis against them generally and ter- certainly teams in the Champions League um, and, you know are, are able to open them up all the time well look at last night look at, look at City and how many chances they created yeah very quickly Mark Liverpool to do the business tonight yeah I, do, yeah, I think it's one of those tricky ones. And I think, you know, if you watch the derby at the weekend and, and I'm saying Arsenal were like obviously making the most of the fouls and the tackles and stuff. And Villarreal will be like that. They've got a, a big centre-back, big bearded guy. His name escapes me at the moment. He throws himself on the floor when, you know, That'll be all. And it, like the size of him. But yeah, Liverpool to win, yeah. Good stuff. Mark Lawrenson, thanks a million. Thank you. We're 70 minutes into the show and we've just talked about football and it just hasn't felt like 70 minutes at all. That's how good that game was last night. Champions League semi-finals is always the the best week of the year from this show's perspective because it's the the midweek sport that is better than anything else, I think. Your your main love in life, I presume, is Kerry football and like these are amateur players who are like, you know, and you can look at football last night and say, you know, they're millionaires, Ancelotti and, you know, Guardiola, they're like, whatever, they don't want for anything in life and whatever, it's a bit septic at the top but you watch a game like that last night and the quality like it's just um, 
you know, it's insanely good to watch. Yeah. Insanely good to watch the moment and whatever happens, like it's nights like that, you just forget about everything else and just enjoy how good watching Kevin De Bruyne is. Yeah, it's grotesque, you know? but it's beautiful. It's, it's exactly. Uh, ODBAM beauty and all that. Brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean a spoofer? He's a bullshit. Ah, no, Emma, come on, don't, don't be, no, I'm not. Yes. No. Carl Milani joined us in studio. Carl, how are you getting on? Morning, lads. Uh, I'm going to run through the papers before we come to you because I want to get your take on a Coochie column. Uh, the OTBsports.com, if you just get it back up there. The OTB Brief, City Age, Rail, Thriller, Day 2 at Punchestown. There's more up there as well. Matt Slater, the Premier League dream has kind of happened. And uh, the Hurling Pod, Limerick Sea off Waterford, Clare making flying start. And uh, Dublin Edge Wexford. The gap is getting bigger as well, is uh, also the headline around uh, the Irish women's team. To go through some of the back pages, first of all, the Daily Telegraph goes with Madchester, City Edge, Topsy Turvy Thriller, but Benzema gives Real hope. The back of the Irish Sun is Unreal, Foden, Game Salon after Etihad Stunner. Meanwhile, uh, Hibby's Roy talk, Hibbs's Roy talk continues. Uh, Hibbs set to hold more talks with Roy Keane and his agents on him taking the Easter Road hot seat. He seems to be pretty keen on that job. Back page of the mirror is Madness. City takes slender lead into second leg after a crazy game and a Benzema Penenka bring on the Bernabeu. Taylor, meanwhile, says this is special. The build-up to Katie Taylor versus Amanda Serrano continues. The back page of the Irish Daily Star, Pep's silver lining. Blues on top after seven-goal epic. And there's more context here on the Roy Keane situation. Daryl Horgan reckons Roy Keane would smash the old firm stranglehold on Scottish footballers Hibs boss. As the bookies trim the odds on the Corkman replacing Sean Maloney, Horgan's convinced Keane would only consider taking the job if he's given a fighting chance to compete. And he says Roy is first and foremost a winner and he'll already have a good idea of what's required at Hibs. That includes the realistic potential for success. If, if Roy Keane went into Hibs and broke the old firm... Yeah, that would be a hell of a story. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it massively depends on what coach he brings in because, like, he needs somebody like the, the good cop, bad cop who um, can can basically coach and has the tactical now that he probably doesn't have. Um, Roy Keane to you know the young Hibs player now is the guy from the TV, not the footballer. So, like, what does he bring to a job? He hasn't been hasn't managed for ten years. So, like, um, we spoke about the madness of it, but like his legacy at the moment is. You know, he did a very good job at Sunderland and then things went a bit awry. But, like, do you expect him to go into Hibs and do a good job? Do, do you have any different opinions about this story than you would have had about Roy Keane potentially going back to Sunderland a few months ago? Or is, is your take basically the exact same? It's Well, my, 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 limited, my limited, very limited knowledge of the SPL is that, like, Maloney was very harshly sacked in the first place. So, like, um, and I think in fairness to Keane, he's wary of the job and he's wary of the like the chairman he's wary of the board for the next job he gets because I think you know when he spoke to Gary Neville on that, that hour long thing or whatever he's like he, he wants the next one to be perfect and I think that's what he's wary of but I don't know I mean is he going to be like a, an innovator at this stage of his life in terms of like is he going to be a Guardiola figure who's like constantly thinking of the game and because for me he offers nothing tactically on TV he just offers sound bites and he's very entertaining but like what makes him a coach I, I don't see it. What do you reckon, Carl? Yeah, I think it's surprising that he's been linked with these sort of jobs because when you watch him as an analyst, you get the sense that he obviously has such high standards and whether he'd be able to implement those standards at club level with clubs that don't necessarily have such 
big resources. I would imagine Sunderland probably have bigger resources than Hibernian would have. Because, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. And then, as Johnny says, in that scenario, you need to be a very good coach to get more out of the players that you have, um, talent-wise, maybe, to succeed. So I'm not sure is it going to be a good fit, but the fact that he's so keen to get back in, he might be tempted. And I think he lived in Edinburgh when he played with Celtic. Uh, City by all accounts. Yeah, yeah. so I mean, he, he might be tempted back, and obviously the Irish connection as well. Yeah. Uh, but imagine the profile lift it would be for the Scottish Premiership if he did go back. Like, oh. Colin Healy is the manager of Cork City, right? Colin Healy was obviously involved in Saipan in a completely different way. Colin Healy is a fascinating character who's creating like a really good impression of Cork City. Nobody talks about him. He's the aspiring coach. Roy Keane is the guy on the TV. Mm. That's where we're at. Yeah, but like if who's ultimately going to have the better chance of getting a big job in English football over the, the next little while Colin Healy will do a better job yeah, that's a different yeah. thing though so I, I'm not sure Roy Keane will manage again he might have one more go at it but um, yeah I Colin Healy um, nobody talks about Colin Healy yet he's a Cork City did 4,000 at an away game the other day mm -hmm. um, deep thinker about the game really really interesting guy he's the aspiring coach here well, not uh, Roy Keane on a slight tangent on that then um, did you see Robbie Keane on Monday Night Football I just saw the the quotes that he gave afterwards in terms of what he would like as like as a coach and all that. So Robbie, it'll be, it'll be interesting for Robbie, yeah. Because I was making the point on Tuesday morning that he's definitely not going to do a duffer uh, as in come to the League of Ireland. Because he's mentioned that there are jobs that he's turned down. But should he do uh, a duffer or a Colin Healy, as it might be? Well, in fairness to Damien Duff, like, and um, he's going into, like, if Shelburne goes badly... Which it might. I mean, they're doing fine. Like they, you know, he got sent off at the weekend. Um, wh wh like he says, this will be my only job in the League of Ireland. So he's obviously aspirations to go higher. But if Shelburne, if he's a flop at Shelburne, like he's not going to necessarily get a job in England straight away. Then, so it is a bit of a gamble and huge risk. He's there, like you know, he says he's having a glass of wine in the south of France. He's thinking about how good his life is. And yes, and we talk about managers. He takes the job at Shelburne in a decrepit stadium in front of like three thousand people every week. But he wanted to do it, so. There is a madness there. Like, how how long do you wait? Like Robbie Keane said on MNF that he's waiting for the right challenge. But how long do you wait until the challenge passes you by completely? Mm. Where that's the situation Roy Keane is probably in at the moment, in that he's probably had dozens of offers in the last ten years. Well, you, you look at at, lo at, lo at Lone Town, right? A basket case of a club in many respects, and you're talking to people who are like possibly in the in, in line for the job, and they're like they're, the opportunities are not there, so we have to go. We have to go for whatever is there, and even in the League of Ireland, I think. Oldham are getting relegated which is John Sheridan other than that there's no Irish Southern Irish coach in the four divisions in England yeah. so they're all in Ireland and Damien Duff is coming onto the bench and he's competing against Stephen O'Donnell he's getting sent off he's getting jeered massively by the Dundalk crowd and that's where that's the opportunity that he has at the moment it's really really difficult for young managers though Do, do you think in any scenario, Roy Keane would be tempted back because he goes to turn his cross quite regularly when he's at home. Oh, the he? League of Ireland. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, he's, he's like he's a brilliant football man. He just goes to games. I think he probably even goes to like Cove Ramblers games. Yeah. He, he's he's just a brilliant football man. I I I I don't think Roy Keane. I guess. I mean, you'd give you'd give him a job on the base of his name, but like there are far far better qualified coaches to give a job to in the League of Ireland now than Roy Keane, and that might sound daft, but like Roy Keane versus Colin Healy is there's no no debate here. Like he'd also have to take a substantial pay cut from Sky Sports, you'd imagine, to do yes. uh, a yeah. much tougher job. Uh, back but, but on that though, the, the the Sky Sports stuff that that's infinite as well. That will he he he'll, he'll, he'll not get away that. with the sound bites forever. Like so, it's not like. 
the Roy I don't think that he could go back to it if he goes into management pretty easily he can but like what's he offering week to week that's changed from what he was offering at the start like his reaction to saying he's sad at the Man United situation that's grand but tell me why they lost 4-0 tell me about the defensive line tell me something that isn't a soundbite about how the game should be played Mm, so it's not going to last forever well that's quite an optimistic view I think soundbites have a a long old future in our universe back page (laughs) of the Irish Daily Mail is uh, Magnificent 7 City and Real serve up Euro. Johnny Ward slams Roy Keane. Here is four <laughs> seconds. Uh, serves up Euro Classic on a night of thrilling drama at the Etihad. And uh, Katie Wow's US audience on NBC's Today Show. Uh, back of the London Times this morning just goes with a simple headline Breathtaking. City and Real serve up seven goal epic. And it's only half time. And also there's a Chelsea buyers who are making a, a last pitch. These are the super rich American owners competing to buy Chelsea have flown into London to make one last pitch before the club officials select a preferred bidder. bidder. So uh, this is uh, the owner of the LA Dodgers who are making their final submissions uh, on Tuesday and who did make their final submissions on Tuesday uh, are going to be involved in that. The back page of The Guardian. Real roller coaster with a photo of uh, Kevin De Bruyne and Phil Foden celebrating, I presume, the opening goal there last night. Uh, Slick City pegged back by masterful Madrid. Back page of the Herald is interesting. McCarthy to skipper Dubs. Veteran will lead Farrell's men as he seeks ninth All-Ireland medal. So it looks like he's going to be given the proverbial armband for, by Dizzy Farrell for this season. By the Dubs, they begin their campaign on Sunday. And then a back page of the Irish Independent. City leave Madrid off the hook. You've got that McCarthy story as well. And also Ten Hag ready to offer Van de Beek a lifeline at United. He's going to be given a chance early on by Eric Ten Hag. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I just mentioned yeah. the examiner as well, John Fallon. Um, the brilliant uh, sports section on, on Sports Supplement on Wednesday. But uh, Clubs Face Betting Sponsorship Dilemma, which is... Um, just talking about Drawdy United and Sligo Rovers kind of leading the way in terms of the League of Ireland clubs looking at sponsorship of by betting companies if if Shamrock Rovers played on Dock they're both sponsored by betting companies and it's a hot topic in the League of Ireland and uh, I definitely think Drawdy and Sligo have done a lot to engineer debate on that Irish Times uh, Silva gives City Edge over Real and thrilling first leg battle is uh, the front of their sports section just to quickly mention Darrow O'Shea's column it's worth checking out today regardless of venue Cork have been a disgrace if we get time we'll come back to that a little bit later on in the show Cahill you've got the headlines what's happening yeah, let's start with uh, last night's Champions League action. Manchester City manager Pep Guardiola insists he's not disappointed with the outcome of their semi-final with Real Madrid. City will take a 4-3 lead after last night's first leg into the second leg next week, but they were unable to capitalise on a number of chances at the Etihad last night. Elsewhere this evening, Liverpool continued their bid for a quadruple. They welcome Spanish side Villarreal to Anfield for the first leg of their semi-final and kick-off for that game is at 8 o'clock. Last night here at home in the SSE Artricity Women's National League, Shelburne moved back level on points with Piment at the top. They beat Wexford Hughes 2-0 last night to move level with the leaders. Elsewhere, Cork City beat Treaty United 4-0 while DLR Wave suffered a 1-0 defeat to Athlone Town. And in the Championship last night cross-channel, Nottingham Forest moved to within three points of the automatic promotion places after a 1-0 win at Fulham. Fulham missing out on their first opportunity to secure the title uh, as a result. Elsewhere, second place, Bournemouth came from 3-0 down to draw 3-0 at Swansea and they'll host Nottingham Forest next Tuesday. So that's uh, going to be a huge game. Elsewhere, 
elsewhere. Last night, Blackpool won 2-0 at already relegated Barnsley in the other game that took place uh, last night. The snooker continues uh, this morning at the World Snooker Championship at the Crucible. Ronnie O'Sullivan needing just two more frames to book his place in the semi-finals. He takes it an 11 frames to five lead into this morning's session against Stephen Maguire. On the other table this morning, Judd Trump resumes with a 5-3 lead over Stuart Bingham in their last eight meeting. In the other quarter-final ties that get back underway this afternoon, John Higgins leads Jack Lazowski by five frames to three, while Jan Bing Tao and Mark Williams are level at eight frames apiece. And both of those matches back underway this afternoon, the first to 13 in all of the last eight matches, progress to the quarter-finals, or to the semi-finals, rather. In a racing, Gordon Elliott could bring his career tally of winners to 2,000 today at Punchestown, the Meath trainer is on the brink of the landmark after four winners on the opening day of the festival yesterday. He sends Galvin off in the day's feature, the Punchestown Gold Cup. That goes off at 5-6, to six, the first of an eight-race card off at uh, 20-4. to four. As mentioned in the papers, James McCarthy is set to captain the Dublin senior footballers in this year's championship. The eight-time All-Ireland winner will assume the role from Johnny Cooper, who led the side in last year's campaign. Dublin begin the defence of their Leinster title this Saturday against Wexford. And finally, tonight is semi-finals night in the Munster under-20. Hurling Championship defending champions Cork play Tipperary and Thurless, while the Gaelic Grounds is the venue for the meeting of Limerick and Waterford. Cahill, good stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks, lads. Uh, Punchestown, is that... Uh moving the needle for you at the moment are you going to be there over the course of the weekend yeah I'm there tomorrow um, mad results yesterday like I mean it's typical punch town you get horses just like at the end of a season like absolutely flopping um, but Gordon Elliott um, I interviewed him on Sunday and he said oh yeah I'm 5 off 2000 winners he's only 1 off now after 1 day um, and he like 4 winners yesterday 2 winners at Cheltenham extremely frustrating Cheltenham he'd what do you have like eight horses pulled up or fell or failed to complete in the Irish National and um, this time last year he was banned that's yeah. like that's where he's at. He's I think he's really enjoying life. He's extremely hungry, and uh, I was delighted for Noel uh, Moran as well, who's um, had Party Central as a winner yesterday. Um, he's invested a lot of money in the game. He's been unlucky with his horse at Cheltenham, um, but Gordon, I think sometimes bad things have to happen to you in life for you to appreciate where you're at and I think um, in, in the long term I think he'll appreciate the suspension and maybe his rethink on, in, in terms of his life and his hunger to be the champion trainer which remains elusive for him Where does this week at Punchestown rank in terms of uh, the kind of the, the peaks and troughs of Irish and uh, British racing festivals? Um, yeah, like so, it's it's kind of hard to get British horses over because at Grade One level they're so far behind. Um, but you know, Clandesobo is over for the Gold Cup today. Um, it's a great festival. It's not Cheltenham. Um, you know, and it's it's stretched out over five days. I think, which is a sign for Cheltenham that they shouldn't do it. Um, but it's it's still like the best of the best in Irish racing, uh, pretty much. And they're all there. It's just at the end of the season. You see with some horses yesterday, like Sir Gerhard, for example, um, you know, Bob Bollinger, they're just not able to perform because they're basically trained for Cheltenham. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, we are uh, bringing you Actually Have You Seen. It's a new slot where we're talking about McCarthy's Park this week. Joseph Comeroy is on standby. It is 8.56, you're with us here on OTBAM. It's brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Joe Conroy on the line. Joe, how are you getting on? Morning, Al. Morning, Johnny. All good? You are uh, waltzing into our life with the beauty that is McCarthy's Park. I haven't seen this thing in a few years. Have you seen this, Johnny? I haven't. You haven't. You're missing out. Tell him why he's missing out, Joseph. You're in for a treat, Johnny. Um, we're kind of completing the transition this morning from sort of high-level elite European football to speculation about the next Hibs job to McCarthy's Park, the park that McCarthy built back in 1999. Basically, what we're looking at here, Johnny, is a nice, tight one hour available on YouTube 
Nick McCarty's first Irish campaign or failed attempts to get to France 98. If that doesn't whet the appetite, I don't know what will. But um, here's just kind of a taste of the type of fare on offer. Just a bit of context for a quick clip here. Ireland have kind of had a bit of a yo-yo, kind of typical, a lot of peaks and troughs in this campaign. We eventually get to this crucial um, Iceland-Lithuania six-point swing. Ireland go, get the six points. And this is from the documentary, just the scenes on the pitch after the Lithuania crucial away win. Well, what, what's he saying? Yeah, yeah what's, what's, what's he saying there again? It's is it uh, some someone in Giles? Like he, he's asking immediately in the aftermath. Beglin and Giles, sorry, yes. Uh, who's in studio? They'd obviously been uh, throwing him under the bus quite a bit in the build up to that game. Yeah, well, there's kind of a theme throughout this uh, documentary. It's kind of it's kind of at war with the media. There's kind of a war for the soul of the future of Irish football. Um, it's kind of it's it's actually amazing watching it. Kind of given all the chats we've been having and sort of especially kind of being plugged into the uh, Republic of Ireland news cycle for the last two odd years, where ironically mix come back into the frame. But um, it's just incredible. But the kind of if you want to put in a bit of context, we're talking about kind of 96 to 99, which is sort of the same period of time that Father Ted was airing. So that's kind of the Ireland we're living in here. Um, also, we kind of got the last embers of the Jack Charlton era and kind of the 2002 crop starting to come in. So you're blooding players like Kenny and Kilban. They're going to come into things. You've got Che Given comes in through the campaign. Um, you've also got a man who I'm not sure... We speak about it enough. Um, we've got a young Roy Keane as well. Um, I got one more clip just on the kind of theme of kind of sort of a bit of background on that kind of outpouring of relief you see on the pitch there. Uh, this is previously at the start of the campaign. Uh, crucial home tie against Iceland in Lansdowne Road. Doesn't go well. Ends in a bit of a farcical nil-all draw. This is before Iceland became kind of a European footballing utopian powerhouse. Um We've also, we've got a certain Roy Keane coming back into the Irish setup. Uh, just before this, he had showed up or been available for four out of the previous 20 or 22 games. And uh, he came back into Dublin and it's fair to say there was a, an air of controversy hanging around his return to Mick McCarty's Ireland team. Roy Keane returns to the Irish squad for the home game with Iceland. Keane's commitment to the cause has been questioned. One newspaper has called for him to be booed at Lansdowne Road. There was a couple of articles that actually encouraged fans to come along and, and vent their anger or show what they actually feel for Roy. Now, whatever they feel for him, what I would say is something that's bigger than that is the rest of us in here. That's the important thing. The, the team and the team doing well. And from the start of the game, when they, when they booed Roy, the atmosphere was very, very poor. I don't think we enjoyed the support on the day that we've enjoyed in the past. At one incident there was, there was a bit of a cheer and it was almost like they'd let the supporters in. I guess one or two supporters could say if we had a shot on goal it was almost like they'd let a team in. 
it's going to be a good documentary. Isn't it mad, like, um, just at the start there, um, that they're so worried about the media? And it was the same with Jack Charlton and Dunphy throwing the pen and all that. Like, you see, you've, you've Dunphy, Brady and Giles, who effectively, like, you know, two, two, two of the best footballers that ever played for Ireland. Dunphy, who's, like, a very, you know, intelligent analyst. Like, but these guys didn't make it as coaches. And the nation was hanging its hat on what they said. Like, as opposed to watch the game and make your own mind up. And even Mick coming off the pitch after a big win is worried about the media. Do, do you not That's think, Ireland, like. Yeah, well, I was just about to say, I, I, um, it very much feels like a point that is still relevant. And well, look at the Sunday game, for example. The Sunday game will show two minutes of Gaelic football and 27 minutes of analysis by three. Like, how about like, show me the game and let me make my own mind up? We, we love the pantomime of it. We love, like, the. It's not just an Irish thing, though, really. I mean, we've just been speaking about Sky Sports and they're. Uh, like, not that it's a pantomime, I think people will hang on every word that are people, are people that are in studio. But when you talk about the um, importance of the voices that would have been critical of the Irish team. I think that you could point towards recent managements mm. and say the exact same thing. I'm I'm not sure did, did Stephen Kenny and Keith Andrews re- read everything about them or did they care? But certainly Roy Keane cared about what Keith Andrews was saying about him uh, quite famously and would have called him uh, one of the biggest spoofers ever uh, as a result of possibly his uh, analysis during his tenure. There's another... There's like... It is that was true. Kind of, you can see it does seem to kind of hit home. Like there's a kind of bit at the end where it's sort of like this kind of pointed, candidly talking to Mick, um, kind of towards the end of the campaign. And he says he was at some, um, he was at a function, and uh, Johnny Jaws was there. And he does a kind of, and I saw him. I went over to him, and I think, I think Johnny was getting some awards. Like, and I shook his hand and I said, "Well done, John." And you know, I know he's got a job to do. I've got a job to do. <laughs> but just going back to that clip there, so you've got Keane coming back, getting booed by Irish fans. He goes on to kind of begrudgingly, almost like passive aggressively, have an absolute stormer win man the match in our nil all, our disastrous nil all home draw against Minnows Iceland. Uh, Mick gets into it with some journalists at the press conference, comes back to the changing room. John Aldridge has been an unused sub. I think he's 38 at the time. Uh, Mick comes back after his tetuous media engagements. Aldo comes over and says, Look, Mick, I'm done. This is a joke. Good luck to you. Uh, don't be excited, this is a joke. But he says, look, I'm not coming over. I should have been used there when we're chasing the game. Good luck to you. Could you imagine the OTBAM the morning after? Roy Keane's been booed by Irish fans. One man the match. There's been a fractious press conference and all those walked away. Like, it's just great stuff. It's kind of stuff that you kind of forget about. And it's kind of, obviously, we know Mick now as kind of the established guy and the guy who maybe, like, was there before the Kenny revolution came in. But, um... He's he's kind of in a similar situation at the time where obviously the disastrous and iconic uh, loss to Macedonia as part of his campaign as well. And after that, it really kicks off from a Mick perspective. There's senior players who come to him. They have a bit of a, you know, we've kind of been thinking about things. And, you know, Jack used to do this. Jack used to do that. And Mick says, yeah, I know. I was there. I was, he kind of says himself, he would have been one of Jack's kind of main foot soldiers and sort of... um, one of uh, his main backers, and he goes, "Yeah, well, it's like, look, lads, Jack's gone. We're doing it my way now." So it's kind of it's, it's interesting. It is mad that we even just kind of culturally, just even all these trips, like the go- going off to Iceland, going off to Lithuania, going off to uh, Romania, um, it all just looks so different. Like it's kind of back then when sort of your property sort of in that transitional period after it's been a lot of change in a lot of those countries. Uh, you've got this one amazing scene where they eventually get the Belgian playoff. They play Belgium in Lansdowne, draw one one all. It's kind of a bit of a disappointing result because they've given Belgium the away goal. 
Um, and there's this bit where they're kind of, it's making a team, they're in a kind of a, it looks like a hotel room or a kind of hotel conference room. Uh, and we say a team means coaching staff and they're kind of going through, they're looking at the Belgian goal and it's like, oh, Shay can't do anything about that, but you know, good hardy you've been on him, yeah. Oh. Then they're kind of going through and like, oh yeah, it's really important that people don't realise, you really have to watch the game, like you can't take it all in on the sideline. And the camera just zooms out and they're sitting there with little like tulip glasses of beer and peanuts in front of them. So it kind of gives you an idea to sort of like a window into another time and just sort of a reminder of how, how, how much has changed so quickly. Yeah. Were you going to games around this time? I went to the odd game, yeah. I went to, I remember going to the Iran um, game, the the, the first uh, leg of the playoff. Didn't uh, I remember an Iranian guy asked me outside, are you going to Tehran? And just the, the, the notion of that. But like, uh, we didn't... Um, like the the hysteria around the Jack Charlton era, like I was a kid growing up in that, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But like in terms of how we coach kids and how we developed as a football nation, like we didn't kick on at all. Like we've we've had like the Jack Charlton era into like all these years of Ireland being basically a big underachiever, exporting all our players, not having a proper national league, not having technical players of quality. Such that now you've Stephen Kenny taking over who's like, We have to break from this. Like we, we have to break from the stereotype of us being this typical British nation that doesn't play good football and you know Mick inherited um, from a obviously from like the Jack Charlton era was legendary but we didn't coach our players properly from there on and we we have a situation now where we're we're basically trying to reimagine what we are as a football nation Do you, do you remember the night King gets booed? I do yeah it's, it kind of brings it back like I think it's going to be a brilliant documentary I mean I was a lot of people listening this morning will have been like you know probably kids It's or out I mean it's on it's, yeah. it's been out for years the, oh, the, the doc, yeah, we're just we're just talking about it because oh, okay, why not? Well, then, then obviously, there's a lot of documentaries on YouTube, but like a lot of us would have been um, teenagers around that time, and the, I mean, the Keen thing. I mean, how could you even make it up? Like, you know, of all the problems in the world, a fella leaving a squad like uh, about a football game, and everyone was talking about it, and. I, if you ever got a poll on a on a national issue that was fifty fifty, that was it. Yeah, amazing times. Uh, well, it seems that it might be mostly against Roy Keane for the for the Iceland uh, situation. Whereas obviously a few years later, that would have uh, the, that, the balance might have tipped back more towards fifty fifty. It's out in ninety eight, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Joe. Is it this documentary? Yeah, it was. It came out in ninety nine, so it would have been kind of yeah. of the time. Kind of, I, I think it might have been kind of around the. Christmassy type looking back at us not qualifying for that brilliant World Cup uh, watching as well it's kind of there There are just all these little amazing nuggets but it does make me wonder you know what content have we been robbed of over the years you know mm. where's Staunton's Park where's Trapatoni's Park where's O'Neill's Park <laughs> where's Mick's uh, Mick's Second Park where's Kenny's Park but um, we've got voice notes on WhatsApp now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's weird. It's weird. Like with documentaries, because everything's on. You know, you can basically get everything on online now. But like, you see the Navalny documentary the other night, and you're like, "Holy crap!" The power of a good documentary that can completely change your day when you watch something like that. But obviously, it's nothing compared to this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> This is this is far more important, uh, far more important journalism. Like, I, uh, like the there's also probably the sense that maybe if Mick McCarthy watches back, he'd be like, "How did this stuff make the cut?" Whereas to kind of counter your point there, I, I wonder if you know we're going to get to a stage where uh, there's going to be so many Netflix versions of behind the scenes in sport that actually there's a level of control about that as well. Yeah, well, I was I was only thinking of this, I, and Joe is probably too young for this, but like the 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 documentary around Galway's 1998 All Ireland win, the year Comer, who's basically one of the, I think he was like maybe second or third choice keeper, but like under behind McNamara, 
absolutely amazing. Like, yeah. when I was a kid uh, in 98, going to the games and, like, the the way that took over Galway as a county, like, I'll never, ever experience anything like that. But that documentary was insanely good, like, and it was so ahead of its time. And you've... You can imagine John O'Mahony is like coming in, he's brought Leitrim to win a Connacht title and whatever, he wants to do what he wants to do with Mayo, um, but he takes over Galway. And you can imagine in 1998, like Comer saying, I wouldn't mind filming some of this, would that be okay? And saying, yeah, yeah, sure, that'll be grand. And it's one of like, the best things you'll ever watch, even yeah. as a Galway person. Um, what else from McCarty's Park caught the eye? What is it, 24 years later? <laughs> is this it's out, shame. by the way? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be out soon, Joe. It is, yeah. Keep keep an eye keep an eye out. It's dropping any day now. Um, just a couple of things like on that kind of how much how much filtered or unfiltered is it? Like there's they couldn't get into the dressing room or they're, they're not in the dressing room, but there is a bit where Mick gives them a tour of the absolutely horrible old Lansdowne Road dressing rooms, which are like it's actually it's amazing how bad they are. But um, it's where it's, it's again these are all these little things that will be kind of lost on time if they weren't up there in this uh, random YouTube documentary. There's another thing as well. Uh, one of the big kind of, as part of that kind of rebirth narrative, uh, you'd kind of cut, you'd kind of McGrath had been frozen out of the setup. Um, it's kind of interesting because you can tell it's kind of dealt with in a way that Mick kind of addresses it, but addresses it quite guardedly. Where looking back now, if you read the um, the book that uh, McGrath did with Vincent Hogan, I, I don't remember the specifics. But I remember that was kind of a particularly kind of chaotic period that would have coincided with this documentary. So it's interesting. You can see those imitations, but I just got one last um, tip from it. Like, we're a bit kind of cursed that anything that's filmed with like a single camera and a person narrating to you about their job feels a little bit officey. Like, it's not officey in the to the point that actually Mick comes out of it very well. Very kind of no matter how dark it gets, he kind of has this wry kind of gallows humor. But um, here's just a taste, kind of give me an idea of that theme of transition I've been speaking about. Um, he's on the motorway checking out a hot prospect. He's um going to make a future impact on Irish football. This this motorway gets well used anyway. I'm not so bad actually because I've got within London there's a lot of clubs I can watch all the players at. They all come to London at some stage. I do get around the country. I do quite a bit of miles. A 240 mile round trip takes McCarthy to the Hawthorns in West Bromwich, Birmingham. A young player, Kevin Kilbane, makes the long journey worthwhile. I get asked constantly about them. And I guess they've all got to keep playing well for the clubs. The lads who have done it for me here, I tried and tested and, and done it. Now, if, if I get injuries somewhere along the way, people will be brought in. So, if we do have injuries, please God that we're in France, I'll be looking at them all. Anybody who's performing well for the club and think they could handle it. It's, isn't it beautiful, like, as we get older, that Steve McLaren isn't that image and who's recently been linked with potentially uh, getting back involved in the Man United setup? You know, Mick is still managing. And Joe, that is obviously like that. That brings me to that. Like, was the last series of the office where um, he's doing his tour and um, does Christmas it, party episode? Was the Christmas, yeah, where like. They, they, there's that footage of him basically eating in some lay-by like late at night and it is the most quintessential life on the road crap like and how grim it is um, and there was Mick going to 
the Midlands. I don't think David Brent ever had a get up like that. He looked like Sean Connery's James Bond in the <laughs> yeah. white suit. Oh, like, who it's was, amazing. Like, Someone's someone left in just before the ads, the little insets, and it's sponsored by Pennies. And I think the FAI had some sort of commercial deal with Pennies. They at the did. Time, they did. I remember that now, yeah. You get a few shots of like Nick uh, in this. It's like everything is kind of on the road. And there's one bit that's kind of like a more of a stylized. It's obviously would we'll do the big interview with Nick for the documentary. And he's there and it's like, denim shirt with his matching denim jeans and his kind of what what you'd probably call like a sports jacket uh, looking the part we, but um, said, St- Steve McLaren was in that shot as well just in front of Mick McCarthy at the Hawthorns like is he at Manchester United at this point is he scouting somebody for Manchester is he scouting Kevin Kilban for Manchester United potentially well What's Kevin Kilbane sorry Kilbane. Yeah, the, the yes. Kilbane of so our old, life so I didn't even know Kilban was Kilban yet this, this is the qualification campaign for 2000 or 98 uh, 98, which oh, is also yeah, no, a kind of... Before he goes to United. I think that gives it a bit of... Um, it kind of gives an extra angle documentary for me because if you think of what could have been, like we were... We controversially lose that Belgian playoff and I've left out the Belgian stuff and I've left out some great stuff like I'm chatting to Nick's dad and his wife uh, just because if you actually do bother to go and read this out, think of how... Think of how good these little nuggets we have there's even better stuff in it so uh, that's kind of my pitch to it but yeah imagine if Ireland had been at France 98 it's a bit of a side indoors moment as well we kind of controversial there's a controversial throw-in that leads to the goal against Belgium that gets us knocked out so mm. you get kind of great footage of the um, heartbreak after that and kind of Mick channeling through this sort of defiant kind of proud of the players then he starts getting emotional then he gets angry then he's talking about how he knows that especially you've You've got more of the young guys coming through by that point at the end of the campaign. He kind of spoke, speaks about getting to the dressing room first, but then kind of having this moment where he kind of goes, right, you need to pull yourself together and kind of be the leader here. But um, yeah, it's just it's a great little artifact floating out there on the interwebs for it, your perusal. It's one of the most heartbreaking feelings to consider all the tournaments and all the memories that would have happened had Ireland been there. Like, I mean, we saw the Irish fans in France in 2016 Imagine what France 98 would have been like with, with the, the Irish fans there. I think Netherlands, Mexico, South Korea was Belgium's group in that as well. You might have given Ireland a bit of a chance of sneaking out of it or, or causing a bit of an upset. Just one, one, one last thing, Joe, before we let you go. Obviously, we saw those West Brom kits there. Absolutely gorgeous. Your favourite Ireland jersey from around that era as uh, OTB's resident style expert? Uh, it's got to be it's got to be the orange Macedonian number. Like... All kind of and like there's in we actually we wrote a piece on the side about this a couple of years ago and it's kind of actually later on I found these old um, letters to the Irish Times kind of giving out about that jersey so we're talking about '96 there so kind of two years before the Good Friday Agreement where like things were obviously a, a lot more probably politically charged than they are now but um so the orange jersey between the results and everything else kind of got shelved but um it's good to see it back now uh, hopefully it'll be staying rotation but yeah. Uh, as a sidebar, just every, all the gear, all the training gear, every sweatshirt Mick has, this is like prime 90s Umbro when they would have been kind of Ireland, England, United, Celtic, and just everything. It's all the stuff that's kind of coming back now. It's like, uh, if you're on kind of Style Watch, uh, this is again another another beautiful little nugget to check out. Doc Martens as well. They were, they were the thing when I was like, I remember when I was in national school Doc Martens were the thing and here we are like 25 years later and they are again are they back? they are yeah oh, Doc no. Martens absolutely yeah like have you not been around? I haven't a clue I mean, no. just talk to me about clothes and you lose me straight away unfortunately I wish I lost I wish. you I wish I need a, a Penny's uh, agreement like the <laughs> and get a white suit or something <laughs> that will be sorted by half nine 
Graham Rowntree has been announced as uh, the new coach of Munster Rugby. That was such a big momentum changer for me. The Red 78 with Alan Quinlan and Neve Briggs. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. Delighted to welcome Matt Williams back to the show. Matt, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning, Alan. Morning, Johnny. Very, very good. Thanks, mate. How's yourself? Yeah, very well. We were just having a chat there about some of the greatest fly-in-the-wall sports documentaries. You strike me as somebody who'd be uh, a good appreciator of a good documentary. What's up there for you, sports-wise? Oh, gee, look, there's so many, isn't it? I love the 30 from 30s and, and uh, you know, the the one on Jack Charlton last year was, uh, was quite mm. magnificent. There's... Uh, there's so many great ones out there. The uh, the All or Nothing series too is brilliant. I think that's the closest one to reality that I've seen. Yeah. The one on the the Dallas Cowboys is uh, that series on the Dallas Cowboys is is very very close to uh, taking people into what it's like in a in a day to day professional team. Uh, we will get to Champions Cup in just a sec, but just on that point, like that that access and and the relationship that rugby has with that access at the moment is in a really interesting place. Like if you watch the Champions Cup on BT, for example, you're getting in-game interviews from the likes of Stephen Larkin, for example, you're getting that footage of Graham Roundtree, uh, you know, telling a few home truths to that Munster scrum, I think, at halftime in that first leg against Exeter a few weeks ago. As a sport, it does pretty well in terms of giving those insights. Yeah, it's not something I particularly liked. I was always asked that all the time, and I just said, no, no way. Yeah. I used to actually uh, walk into the change room and they put a, put a camera up in the change room, which I thought I think is really wrong. I get a piece of paper and just blue tacker straight over the top of the camera. <laughs> the they'd, always want, they'd always want to have, have a camera on you all the time. They're, they're just waiting for that gotcha moment too. So, look, I think the game's changing. People want that that part of it more and more. Um, there, there's difficulties with it because you're saying things that are private that all of a sudden become public. Like when you talk to your players at halftime or you have to say something quite strong to them, um, you don't, you, you know, you're saying that personally. And to for that to get out into the public... Um, it does cause problems within a group. So I think there's a there's a balance of what people want to see and you, how you keep your relationships within within the group and, and what has to be said. Because with it, I think it's the thing that perhaps Michael Jordan um, in, in, in that wonderful documentary series that I've watched three times brings across more than anyone else is that winners are brutally honest. And when you're part of a really successful team, I've been fortunate to be in a couple of really successful teams, the honesty is just so brutal. It forges really strong relationships that last your lifetime. But most people would think that that's being um, disrespectful to people. Did you and watch- it's not. Sorry, Matt, Sorry. Did, you watch the, did you watch the Where's Your Pride documentary last year? No, I, I didn't. Yeah, because you you gotta watch that. Like I'm not even into rugby, but like what Ireland winning those two triple crowns in the in the early eighties when the country was in in a really bad way in terms of people emigrating and that. And I guess while it's just from a different era, but like the 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 rugby that Ireland played, um, innovative rugby at that time, and also just what it did for the nation in a decrepit Lansdowne role with like the place going absolutely nuts. Definitely should be on your bucket list. Yeah, look, and I. I'm friends with a number of guys from that era and that team. Uh, you know, Willie Anderson's a great mate of mine. I was very blessed to work, work with Kieran Fitzgerald for many years and just one of the most wonderful men you'd ever like to meet in an encyclopedic rugby mind and Hugo McNeil and so many of those guys I've, I've met and got to know over the years. And the the bond and the forge between those 
men um, is is quite extraordinary. And what they've done in the rest of their lives with rugby also tells you so much about them. But I think they're very aware of of what they were involved in at the time. Uh, it was a tragedy. We don't have tragedies in sport. It was a great disappointment they didn't win a Grand Slam because that, that team certainly deserved it. For sure. Um, we haven't had you on since the Champions Cup round of 16, Matt, and I think it's fair to say maybe you were a bit sceptical about how the two-legged affairs would actually go. Did your mind change at all after some of the drama you saw in the second legs of those last 16 matches? No, not, not, not at all. I'm more convinced than ever. Right. I think if I can put it to your listeners in this, imagine imagine we're talking about the, uh, the 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 Masters that's just been on and we were all up watching at night. That was wonderful. Imagine on Saturday night the, the Masters committee says, listen, by the way, uh, we're going to make a very small cut, maybe, maybe 15% of the players. You're not going to play on Sunday. But now everyone's off scratch. So what's gone on, on Thursday, Friday and Saturday doesn't count. It's whoever wins, wins on Sunday. And some bloke who's who's been ten over has the round of his life, and another guy who's been nine under all 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 week, all the three days, he's back to zero and he loses by a stroke. That's what we had. Like Munster, uh, sorry, uh, Ulster won five games and lost one, and knocked out by Toulouse, who won two games. Uh, you, you come down to um, on on the other side of. Of that, you had Harlequins, the same thing, five and one. They've won five games, lost one by uh, in, in Montpellier. Montpellier had won two. They go through. That's not that's not a, a fair – anything near uh, an even uh, playing field. Now, we're in a COVID year and there was people, there's a reasons for this. Okay, I, I get it, but that cannot stand. That cannot go on where you can have teams – that can win one or two games all season that come to the round of 16 and they knock out a team that loses one game all year. So it just doesn't hold up on any scale of, of a meritocracy that all sporting competitions in whatever laws they have and whatever scores they have, uh, it sustains them, it gives them value. Uh, there's a couple of teams there, you know, Montpellier shouldn't be in that final 16 and, and Toulouse, and I'm, I'm great fans of how they play. Don't get me wrong. I love watching Toulouse play. I'm, I'm, I'm been a been a great supporter of that club and an admirer of that club. But they did not perform in this competition for a whole lot of reasons, and they've been given a, a free pass because of COVID. Okay, we, we can accept it this year. I think they'll all whoever wins this year, uh, unless it's uh, one of the teams that has won a lot of games like Leinster, there'll be a question mark on it. But next year, that can't stand. It, you, you can't have that type of format that undermines the credibility of the competition. I, I think, um, like, from a football perspective, Matt, on this, just very briefly, like, um, you've had, in the League of Ireland, you've had two teams go up from the first division into the Premier Division who were totally ill-equipped for the job over the, in the playoffs by, by complete fluke um, over the last two years. And in English football, how they think it's an acceptable system that it's a two-legged playoff between third and sixth you finish third, you finish way ahead of six, and you have a two-legged playoff, which is not meritocracy at all. How is it not like a one-off game played uh, at the home of the team that finished third give them the advantage? So as much as you want to make it exciting, as Matt says, like what you're just throwing away everything that happens throughout the year to make it into this situation. Mm. Yeah, go, go ahead, Matt. Well, I was just going to say, the, the thing that should occur is, is the quarterfinals in the Heineken Cup is the best weekend of club rugby in the year because you've got 
eight quality teams playing four games across the weekend. Now, if they made the quarterfinals home and away, that would be wonderful because there's two great legs of teams that can make that have made the quarterfinals, as long as it's a meritocracy that gets you to the quarterfinals. Now, the problem is that the meritocracy has been taken out of the competition by that. So what is the advantage? And if we, if we spin this back, let's put our cynical caps on. I know you can't believe you can be cynical in rugby or sport. The French and English clubs, if you put this system to them, they're not going to care about the um, – the, the, the pool stages. They're just going to play, play seconds teams. So we've, we've just got to make sure we can make the cut. And the cut uh, from from the from the pool stages to the round of 16 was so minimal um, uh, that they could win literally one game, as, as happened to Stade Francais, one game got them into the round of 16. Now, if Stade Francais at one stage against Racing 92 were leading that game and were in front. Now, Justice came through and Racing won. Racing had won five games to the last game. Stade Francais had won one, yet they were leading in, in that other game and they would have gone through. Mm. So every, the, the, the French and English clubs don't like the European Cup as a whole because that it takes away from the focus on the top 14 and their premiership in England. So this system that would allow them to sneak into where the money is, so let's come back to the round of 16 for money, that's what they would do. Money was to be made in the round of 16. Now, I get it. Everyone's lost a lot of money because of COVID. They had to generate money. Clubs, this is a way for everyone to get a home game to generate money. I get all that. And I, I can understand it in a COVID year. But for the integrity of the competition to go forward, you can't do this. I came out of Super Rugby. When Super Rugby was going, I, just, I was just watching – um, the the um, uh, United Championship with the Irish teams playing in South Africa. When I was in South Africa, and Andy Friend was with me, the Connacht coach in South Africa 20 years ago, the stadiums we played at were packed. There were 30,000, 40,000 people, 50,000 at um, uh, the old Ellis Park, the Emirates Stadium now in Johannesburg. They are empty. They are empty last weekend. It was so sad to see it because of administrators mucking around and tinkering and changing what were wonderful competitions. The Heineken Cup is the best competition in the world. If they, club, club competition that is, if they keep tinkering with this and doing what they're doing and it loses its integrity, it'll go the same way as Super Rugby and what we're seeing in South Africa at the moment, which is no one going to, to club rugby, which was once so thriving in that country. Probably a good jumping off point then just to talk a little bit uh, about Connacht. There's really interesting thoughts though on, on the, the tournament format and what they actually do from here. But just on Connacht and I guess the, the win in South Africa uh, last weekend, it's it's an interesting time for them given I guess the mood music was quite down on Connacht after getting hammered by Leinster the week beforehand and this idea of how did they get to the next level within uh, the four tier Irish provinces almost. So w- what do you see as the immediate future for Connacht? Like what sort of business can they do in the off season and what can they be targeting over the next one or two seasons do you think well I, I I'm, I'm talking I'm not talking out of two. I text Andy friends straight after the game and I don't do it very often because I don't like getting in coaches ears even though they're friends I just said that was an historic win that, that that's something to win at Ellis Park at mm. any time any team that wins at Ellis Park at that altitude where it is the difficulties that that throws up and I know I've been there I think I've been there five or six times with different teams, emerging Wallabies, Waratahs, um, and, and then through Super Rugby, it is such a difficult place to go and win. And for Connacht to go down there after 
getting their backsides handed to them by Leinster, you know, in, in that game at the Aviva. For them to find a way to win at Ellis Park is one of the club's great wins. The really must be so infuriating for Andy and for Connacht supporters and the players is is they're so up and down. They're, they're just so inconsistent. But that is what a young team developing does. They are inconsistent. They'll have great wins, great performances, and a couple of weeks later they'll be absolutely terrible. Uh, and look at what Connacht did after their, their heroics playing against Munster. They then go over to Edinburgh and play absolutely shocking. They play brilliantly at the sports ground against Leinster and they're appalling at uh, at the Aviva. Then they go to Ellis Park, one of the hardest places in the world. And and just for the again for your listeners, like because of the altitude, the oxygen you just don't get enough oxygen there. It takes your body uh, a couple of weeks to to get used to playing in that altitude. And um, you know so much so that you can kick the ball maybe 15 metres further than you would at sea level. You, you can see Jack Carty was just. Just uh, his contacts with the ball were just absolutely magnificent, flying through the air. That's what happens at the altitude. So that is the young team. It, it, to answer your question, it's easy. It's it's one hundred and one. It is their defence. Their defence is killing them. Even in the in that game at Ellis Park, when uh, the Lions took a quick tap, they're all still talking and looking at the referee. Backs turned, and it was like something in the under tens. The Lions took a quick tap and just ran over the try line. After all their heroic work, all the work they've done, they let in a try as as ridiculously simple as that. Their defence against Leinster was really poor. Their systems are wrong and the players' commitment at times is wrong. Now, where does that start with? Well, I think the coach, the defensive coaching has to really be looked at. The system they're using, they're very vulnerable with kicks coming through because uh, in behind their, their, their back three system is really poor, I think. But if you look at them, they're scoring a lot of points, uh, but they're just letting in far too much. And at this level, your defence is your foundation. If you haven't got your defence right, you're dead. And that's unfortunately what's happened to Connor. They, they can match it. Andy came out and said that he didn't believe, uh, you know, Leicester were that far in front of them. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people said, oh, that's not true. Leicester have got a great setup and great teams, but they're not that far in front. But... Connacht's defence is a long way behind and inconsistently behind. And until they fix that, they're going to struggle. Just very quickly, Matt, before you wrap, is there a chance that Andy Friend has a, another rabbit to pull out of a, a hat almost, if you can use that phrase, with regards to somebody like Mac Hansen coming into, into the team? Because it seems like it's that sort of knowledge that he has that is a point of difference compared to some of the Irish provinces and something that might be able to elevate them relative to resources. For sure. Look, you know, on great on big days, you need your great players to play great. So you got you need more high quality players in your side. There's no two ways about that. And he tells a beautiful story about Mac Hansen because he's uh, from the same town from Canberra where Andy's from. And he said one of his friends owned a bar, and he rang him up and said, "I've got this bloke called Mac Hansen's been coming into this bar here. He's Irish qualified." And he said, "What's he like?" He said, "He's pretty loose." He said, "Oh, I like loose. I'll give him my phone number." So that was <laughs> that was his recruitment method. Now I'm sure he's he's uh, telling a bit of a tale there, but you, you do need quality players, um, and you need to recruit them in. And obviously, put quality players that are Irish qualified are even better. Um, I think Andy, you know, he's such a good operator, and the players obviously respect him and and enjoy. I heard you talking about Mick McCarthy there. The word respect. Mick's a lovely human being when you get oh, – I've had the privilege of meeting him a number of times over the years. He's, you know, when you meet 
you, you meet people like Andy and Mick, you, you come away with the, the feeling of the decency and the humility of the men. And when you're that sort of uh, coach, that attracts players. That They want to work with good people. So hopefully they can. Absolutely. Uh, Matt Williams, great as ever chatting to you. Thanks, Millie, for hopping on the line. Pleasure now. Cheers. Matt Williams there, chatting rugby. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day.